Can you name a book? The Book of Lies. The book that's most changed my life. The books have nothing to say. The most correct of any book on earth. This book is fantastic. This book is going to, you know, scare people. This book is not a bedtime story. This book is out of control. Oh, truck drivers would love this book. You must burn the books, Montag. That's my second favorite book of all time. I'd like to bear my testimony. I know this book is true. You're listening to the Book of Darren. Radio, podcasts, the spoken word, theater of the mind. It's truly a format I love. And I think it's safe to say my guest feels the same way. Scott Fuller got his start in media as the sports writer for his local paper as a teenager. Started podcasting before you and I could even define that word. And if you're in or around Mower County, Minnesota, you might hear him on KAUS. If you aren't near Mower County, you still may have heard him on one of his podcasts. Frozen Truth, Status Pending, Dead and Gone in Wyoming, or Find Jody. Speaking of Find Jody, you may have seen him in a recent 2020 episode, Gone at Dawn. I love this dude, and I'm sure you will too. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Scott Fuller. Let's get right into it. What the hell is wrong with you that causes you to become obsessed with decades-old unsolved cases? One of the first instances I can remember of being interested in this type of subject matter was actually your, um, your realm of D.B. Cooper. I remember seeing probably the Unsolved Mysteries episode on D.B. Cooper, Robert Stack, you know, and the whole thing. And so fascinating. And then I went from that to like Bigfoot, UFOs, all the normal kid stuff, right? You know, <laughs> that every healthy 12, 13 year old should be interested in. I say that facetiously, but um, it continues to this day because I first get interested in the mystery. I want to know what happened, not develop a theory that will pacify my own understanding because we have human beings are terrible this way and that we, we have to understand the world around us. It's like an evolutionary uh, imperative that we've developed. I need to know if that thing in the bush over there is predator or prey is going to harm me or, or do I, what is it? And so when unexplained things happen, uh, it, be it whatever, but an unsolved cold case is probably prominent in our culture that way where a trial is underway and we immediately want to know what happened and the justice system doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. So I'm able, I think, to put that aside and invest myself in the chasm there, in the gap, in what, what actually happened. So the mystery gets me started, and then I get to know the people involved. You know, I, I, it's, it becomes personal when you personally meet someone or know someone, be it an investigator, victim's family member, something like that. So it, you just go further and further into the vortex, as it were, and... Um, then you become, you know, you hone your skills at doing the show and research. And um, that's how I've arrived where I am, I guess. Do you think that these unsolved cases attract a specific type of person? Because it's a self-selecting group. It is. And you might even say it's um, adversely self-selective in that it's a very disturbing subject matter. You want to believe that this kind of thing doesn't actually happen. You know, you don't want to imagine it happening to you, I would think. 
And so why do you become fascinated with this? So yeah, I think people who get interested in true crime specifically, uh, and there are a bunch of sh- uh, sub groups of that, I think too, there are different cases that people are interested in. Some people are super interested in serial killers. Some people are interested in cold cases. Some people stay up to date on Nancy Grace every night and they want to know what's happening in the news right now. So there has to be something there that I haven't totally figured out, but it's also not new. We've been as a culture, as a species, probably fascinated with cold cases forever. Um, In America, you go back to Truman Capote, probably before that. And then you have the horror genre of Stephen King, Don Winslow, uh, true crime, horror, rather. So um, there is something innate, I think, to I'm trying to think of a better way to explain this, Darren, but I can't. Are you a, a South Park fan? Yeah, I am. There's an episode of South Park where I think it's the character Randy watches these shows and he calls them murder porn, which <laughs> I actually think that's, as usual with South Park, that's a very simple, funny, and accurate way to describe it because it's your ability to experience this fascinating thing once removed. You know, you don't have to experience the reality that goes along with all of these cases. You just get the, the, for want of a better term, the fun stuff, the movie stuff, you know, without experience, the, the experiencing the pain or the loss, the heartbreak, the real bad stuff. So murder porn is, is I guess my answer to the question in it, it that, this true crime genre allows us to be fascinated with something we hope we never are involved in, but we're very interested in too. Great answer. I like that. (laughs) There seems to be one true crime case that fascinates you more than some of the others. Maybe. Um, I'm definitely more invested in the Jody who's in true case than any other case at the moment. It's a fascinating case, but it's not where I started. I started doing a podcast called Frozen Truth several years ago now. A friend asked me to look into a case in Wyoming. And so I started the, you know, everyone has one now, an investigative true crime podcast. But it was in the sense that it went on the ground. This is not a case a week where we discuss cases based on newspaper articles. Actually go to the place, talk to the investigators, talk to the family members. And um that has now four seasons. I'm still in the middle of the fourth season of that. But the third season of Frozen Truth was the disappearance of a television news anchor named Jody Hoosentrup, who disappeared in Mason City, Iowa in 1995. She was abducted from the parking lot of her apartment complex. And um, in doing that season, really the only reason I started is because I live very nearby. I live probably an hour away from Mason City. And it's pretty prominent here, especially in the upper Midwest, but it was a national case at the time, but it's, it's fairly prominent still. And in the course of doing that uh, season, I got to know this group of journalists and um, former law enforcement called Find Jody. And they asked me to become a part of the team uh, a couple of years ago. And so I agreed to do that. And that is the reason that that case specifically more than any other that I've covered still consumes me. Cause that's a daily thing. Um, my work with fine Jody. So I research on the ground for them. I'm the local guy, any people that need to be talked to around here, any documents need to be asked for stuff like that. That's what I do for fine Jody. And that takes up a good part of my time. Now, how old were you in 1995? I would have been 
11 in 95. And when did you first hear about Jody? I didn't hear about Jody until I got out here. I work at a radio station as my day job, um, two radio stations here that I program in Austin, Minnesota. And there was a woman who worked with us at one point who was a meteorologist on one of the competing television stations in this same market that Jody worked in. And she was talking to me just as we, you know, office talk. Somehow Jody's case came up and I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never heard of that. This is probably in 2010. And so Jody had been missing for 15 years at that point. And I'd never heard of Jody. And she said, oh, you have to go see this website, which was the Find Jody website. And so we spent the rest of the day um, stealing off his time, I guess, and um, looking at all the theories and the case. And after that, I didn't do much with it, actually. I was just passively interested like everybody else. Eventually, I produced a podcast for my radio station several years ago, and that led to Frozen Truth, and that led to where I am now. All right. I have a few questions about... Uh about Jody specifically, they hired these private investigators and the private investigators hook up with a couple of psychics Mm -hmm. going way back. Yeah. What, what's your question? Yeah. (laughs) My question is, have you seen that TV show? No. So Jody's sister, Joanne, and this was early on 95, 96. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I I read that, you know, that it was part of a uh, TV pilot. They did. Uh, Jody's sister, very early on, 95, 96, maybe 97, but not much later than that. In the first year or two, she was asked, I guess, to participate in a show in um, L.A. And they flew her and her mom was still alive at that point out there, Jody's mom. And they sat on this panel. And I, I think we've all seen this show, a version of this show where the psychic is there, the host is there, and the two family members are there, and the psychic does his thing. Was it John Edwards who used to do something like that? Yeah, Similarly. Yeah, that con man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a it's an impressive skill, but it's not... I shouldn't make a blanket statement like that. I don't know what's out there or what's not out there. I don't know what people are capable of. You know, I don't know what um, what is out there in the supernatural that we don't have explained, but I have... Something I figured out very early on as a kid was if it's on television, it's making money for somebody, you know, and that doesn't mean that TV um, preachers are representing a bad concept, but damn sure they're making money, you know, so I think the same might be true for psychics or anything else you see on TV. But uh, no, I have not seen that show. I don't know what that psychic on that show would have told the family. It's actually a good question. I've never seen a copy of that broadcast. I can't remember the name of the show right now, but I know what you're referring to. The show was called Psychic Detectives. I wrote That's right. Yeah. And that ran for a while, actually. Yeah, That was on. I've probably seen episodes of that show, but I don't think I ever saw Jody's episode. You've looked into more than one missing persons case. What are your thoughts on bringing a psychic in real quick? I think a psychic is useful investigatively. From two standpoints, you never know who is contacting you. So perhaps the psychic knows something that's not intuitive. Maybe they literally know something because of some involvement, indirect or direct in the case. That as an investigator, you should never rule out. And I think it's good when a case reaches a certain point, if you bring a psychic in or at least listen to a psychic and they give you a different way to look at things. 
whether or not it's divinely or paranormally, um, you know, received by the psychic. I think an investigator should be open to something. A, a, a detective might sit there and listen to the psychic and it might trip something in his brain that is totally unrelated to what the psychic is talking about because half the time they start with, well, the body is near water. And, um, you know, have you looked at the family members and this person had some turmoil in their life, you know, et cetera, <laughs> um, very specific information like that. But a detective might listen to that and say, you know, there's this thing in the file that relates to this other thing. And I wonder, and that might start something I am aware just to play devil's advocate on myself of a handful of psychic tips that turned out to be very specific and, and actually led to a resolution or a prosecution in a case. But those are, I can think of maybe five, six, seven over a century, and they're a drop in the bucket compared to the number of psychic tips that are spouted on the internet now or get called into police departments, things like that. So I'm a skeptic, but I'm not, um, I don't think I'm an arrogant skeptic in that you listen to everybody. You never know why someone's coming forward or what you individually with your own knowledge might be able to glean from something like that. I think that was a great answer. I totally agree with that because, you know, like you mentioned, there are instances where a tip from a psychic led investigators mm-hmm. down the correct path, but it, you know, it could just be an, an outside opinion or maybe that person does have awesome psychic powers. Um, if they do hit me up because my sports bets this year went terribly. (laughs) One thing about psychics though, if you're going to insert yourself into an investigation like that, you're giving the family hope. And I think that's a particularly evil thing to do. If you know that you're not so divinely inspired, you know, you're doing this for your own monetary gain. You're doing it for your own narcissism, whatever it is, but to give family false hope, I have terrible stories. I could tell you about cases of family members who were led on by psychics for months and longer with what this person, the psychic must know is a false hope that this person can be found or their killer can be found. I think that's just, that's just pretty, that's pretty bad. Yeah. That's pure evil. Those people should definitely go to jail. I read an article a few years back about people who were contacted after there was like an obituary and said, Hey, if you want to talk to your dead loved one, give me a call. And I read that and I was like, I want to go find those people right now. (laughs) It's amazing. I have, uh, I'm working four podcasts right now. One of them is called Status Pending and and the co-host in Ohio and I, Heather Wright, do a case a week. And not too long ago, uh, we had a case of a woman whose daughter went missing. This daughter had drug problems, unfortunately. And so she eventually went missing after this incident. But prior to her disappearance, she got a phone call from this guy who claimed to have her daughter. Now her daughter had gone for a couple of days on a drug uh, bender basically, but somehow this person on social media or some other way had figured out that this woman's daughter was missing. So she called this woman up and sent her on something out of a movie, go withdraw this money from an ATM, go over here and do this. And she, the, the person calling would talk to a woman in the background of the phone call and she would respond by screaming or yelling, you know, something like that. She, this person didn't have her daughter. Her daughter wasn't with this person, but this person had figured out that the daughter was missing. And so was basically trying to get money out of the mom while, while this person's daughter is missing. Unbelievable. But they're out there. People like that are out there. 
tell me they went to jail. No, I don't think they didn't catch. It's a terrible ending because they didn't catch that guy. Although they figured out it was a hoax because the daughter eventually came back and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was not being held hostage. And uh, she went missing a couple of weeks later and she is still missing actually, but no, they didn't catch that guy. Wow. What an uplifting story. Very uplifting. I know this is the world I live in. (laughs) All right. Back to Jody. Yeah. There was a journal where all the pages were, they took a picture of all the pages and sent that to a newspaper. And then it was later discovered that the person who sent the copies of the journal was the wife of a former police chief. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell's going on there? I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. So when one chief was leaving the department, he apparently took a copy of Jody's journal home with him. And the wife used to work for the local newspaper and she sent via mail unmarked envelope, uh, no return address to the newspaper, this copy of Jody's journal, full copy of all the photocopies of the journal pages. And the Mason City Globe Gazette published only a few of those entries in the newspaper, I'm sure at the behest of the Mason City police. And the police conducted an investigation, very quickly figured out that it was the wife, her name is Cheryl Ellingson, actually, who mailed this um, this copy of the journal. She has never given a motive for that as to why she did that, what she was trying to accomplish by doing that. And um, the only... The only insight it gives are just a couple of the published pages of Jody's journal, which I'm not sure how much that helps. They're pretty innocuous and it's not the whole thing. And nor should they have printed the entire journal. And in my personal opinion, they shouldn't have printed the pages that they did print in the newspaper, even though I'm happy to have them as someone who's interested in the case. But somebody's journal is the ultimate personal, you know, that to, to read that, let alone have it be read after your death by an entire community even parts of it is the ultimate invasion of privacy. So the family is pretty upset by that. And I can understand why as to why she did that. I have no idea. Members of our team have contacted her in the last two years even and said, what's going on. And she hangs up the phone basically. So I don't know what she was getting at there. You got to think about why, why she would do it. So she, maybe she thought there was some bombshell in there. And now I'm a reporter at the paper. I get this in the mail. As a reporter, I'm going to read the entire thing mm-hmm. and then determine for myself, um, is there a bombshell in here? And it seems like they didn't. And I, I agree with you. I don't think they should have printed even what they did. But I like that you said as a fan or not a fan, as someone very interested in this case, mm-hmm. um, you do. I want to read the whole that. thing. Yeah, But should I have the right to read it? No, probably not. But um I, I don't know. I would only be speculating. People have offered up that she might be trying to promote awareness of Jody's case by, by doing something like that. Any explanation, though, has never made sense to me. I don't know. She used to work at the paper, the wife of the police chief. So you wonder if she was trying to help out, uh, give a scoop to a reporter. But she's also married to somebody who would know that evidence shouldn't be walking out of the evidence locker and Usually wives are pretty in line with their police chief husbands when it comes to something that important. So I don't know that. And what was printed in the paper anyway was pretty innocuous. But as you know, people will take the material that's available and just read between the lines. Yeah. You know, what does this each each word, each sentence mean? 
And I don't think there's anything there. I don't think police have seemed overly interested in the journal as a whole either, but um, they kind of tried to sweep that under the rug, did the Mason City Police, and just move on. And it's one example, unfortunately, of several pieces of key evidence walking out of the evidence locker in Jody's case. There was a, a birthday party video that was taken of her several weeks before that's kind of indirectly central to this whole case. And um, that was released to a, a, a ox the Oxygen Network a couple of years ago for a special. They only ran a couple of clips of the birthday party video, but that is another piece of evidence that shouldn't be out there to be viewed. And um, the police chief in response to that said, we're not going to waste our time concerning ourselves with how this got out. Basically, we're not too worried about it. So I don't know. It's one of those cases that has so many strange twists and turns. And Wait, that, the police that, didn't weren't aware that that footage had leaked? So the first time any of us had ever seen anything from the birthday video, which was taken two weeks or so before Jody's abduction, was on that oxygen special a couple of years ago. And so we knew what it was and we reached out to the police chief and he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of it, it would be a waste of time for us to investigate how that ended up on oxygen. Basically. Couldn't someone at oxygen say how they got the footage. I, I have a suspicion there was an FBI consultant who was featured on that show. And so it wouldn't be impossible for him to have used his connections to get the birthday video and it's out there. And then if you're the MCPD, you're in a tough spot because you've got the thin blue line thing where you don't want to rag another law, law enforcement officer. But um, also it's, it doesn't look good. So what are they going to say? You know, it, it's all bad options at that point, I guess. And so the response of the chief was again, basically we're not too worried about it. So there you go. That's that does seem pretty odd. <laughs> What's wrong with the police department there? There's a lot of frustration by locals for MCPD, and it's it goes back a long way. It goes back before Jody. Um, she didn't help things when she disappeared because that case seems to be like the breaking point of mistrust in the community with the police department. But um, there's a long, long history I won't bore you with there. But there, it's the current batch of investigators in Mason City, the current administration, I think are coming from the right place, but I worry that they don't have a whole lot to deal with in terms of the original evidence. What do you think of the theory that she was working on some sort of a story um, and she was do doing some crazy investigative piece and that had something to do with her disappearance? I think that's been pretty well disproven. Her boss, Doug Murbach, was her editor and um, he has told us she was not working on anything like that. Jody wanted to be Good Morning America. You know, she wanted to be the anchor. She she wanted to be that warm presence who just sits behind the desks and and makes the connection with the audience and and reads the news. Essentially, she didn't want to be a journalist so much. She wanted to be on television, and she found her niche in Mason City. I think with that Daybreak show that she was on because it was a very warm uh, morning show kind of feel. She and her coal anchor her meteorologist had great chemistry on the air she was not investigating anything the stories that she was assigned to were very innocuous and i have a feeling she was doing them because she had to she wanted to be an anchor i talked to the archivist at the mason city library who was still working there when jody worked there and she remembers jody coming into the library to do research and when she would it was stuff like 
there's a ribbon cutting at this bridge. So what's the basic history of this bridge? She is not an investigative journalist. So no, I, I don't think, in fact, I know for sure she was not working on anything that got her killed. I think that's a safe statement. All right. I want to ask you about another wacky fact in this case. So like 2008-ish, a bunch of people signed a petition to have Jody Hoosentrout, am I saying that right? Hoosentrout mm-hmm. Day for, for the city. Yep. And yep. it was shot down. But then some people said like there was some sort of a cover up about it. What I know about that, there was a state representative named Quaker who proposed this idea as a Jody Hoosentrout Day in Mason City. It might have been a city. I think he was the local state representative for the district in in Iowa. And so it would have been, I think, actually in Iowa statewide, Jody Hoosentrout Day. And I think uh, he was coming from a good place with that. But it didn't hit well with the family. And the reason why is Joanne, Jody's sister, and the rest of the family felt very uncomfortable by that because why is Jody special? There are a ton of missing people in Iowa. Why should she be singled out just because she happened to be a news anchor or just because her case had a lot of coverage, has received a lot of coverage? So actually, I think the reason it went away as an idea is because the family wasn't comfortable with the added exposure. They were embarrassed by it almost. So it, it, I, I'm not aware of any cover-up or conspiracy with the Jody Who's and Day idea. It was proposed, I think, in good faith by that one local representative. And then uh, it was shot down by the family because they didn't want the they didn't want any extra attention in terms of over any other victim or any other disappeared person in Iowa. I think they were just uncomfortable with the idea. Do you think that case ever gets solved? So I think the way you solve this case now is some kind of obviously some kind of forensic evidence. There's only two pieces of forensic evidence in Jody's case. There is a palm print that was found on her car in the parking lot. And there was a hair that was found somewhere. Don't know where, inside, outside, but one single hair is all they've said. Both or neither, neither of those things could be related to the abduction, too. So who knows if there are even evidence in the case. There are tons of reasons why hairs in a parking lot, let's say, or why a palm print is on Jody's car. Matching the palm print would be the best start. And then if they have any DNA evidence from anything that they've kept, which to my knowledge they don't, then that would be the way that you prosecute this case. There are hopeless moments. You know, you're familiar with this with your D.B. Cooper research. There are hopeless moments in, in that investigation because you wonder as the years go on, will, will it ever be solved? There is some hope there, I think, with Jody's case. But I ask myself a lot, what do I want? Do I want a prosecuted person in a courtroom or would I be happy with myself just knowing the answer to my own personal satisfaction? And I probably would have said the latter at some point, but now I want, I want it to be proven somehow. I want the family to know that. I want everybody who is theorizing to know that anybody who's interested in this case or ever has heard of this case, I want there to be an undisputed person that people can point to dead or alive who is responsible for this i think that's difficult at this point but it's not impossible dead or alive that was a great caveat you put in there because as these cases get old people who 
who were or are suspects sometimes die. Sometimes oh, yeah. people get old and die. It's been 25, 27 years. It will be this summer. And if the if Jody's abductor was her contemporary, then he would be only 55, somewhere in there. So it's not as hopeless as some other cases. But if the man was older, then he may have passed on. They're doing amazing things with familial DNA and touch DNA, which has its problems. But science is ever advancing. And the Mason City Police Department constantly talks about the science in Jody's case. I don't know what they're referring to because they've never released any DNA possible evidence. Um, they have Jody's DNA. Right, but we know who Jody is. We know who Jody is, but that's helpful in if they ever find remains, then she can be identified, uh, hopefully, because they have her DNA on file. So um, I want the family to know before, you know, while Joanne is still with us, and sooner than later, I want the family to know what happened to Jody and then everybody else who's been interested in this. That's all I want. And I don't care who gets credit for it. I don't care how we find out. If somebody is still alive, then they should be prosecuted for it. But if we get the answer and the person is dead and the science is there and it can be proven, then that's as good as we can do. But it's better than not knowing forever. Oh, yeah. If you can prove that, you know, Billy Bob did it, but Billy Bob died in in 2018 that's still great that still is the answer yeah. and and people look at that and say okay yeah yep that checks out now i now i know the end of this story so people have heard of four or five maybe six people of interest people who have been named by police in jody's case but we have find jody has researched hundreds of people and as we go on half the time they're deceased died in 2018 died whenever that doesn't stop us from looking into it but it makes it harder because it's harder to prove if a person is dead it's harder to research usually and i don't know how much the county attorney's office how how, how interested is a prosecutor going to be in someone who is dead you know they're very busy with cases with alive suspects so um i don't know but we're looking for that link and mostly through research and interviewing people and document requests and all that good stuff. Very similar to your work in DB Cooper. We're looking for, um, for that one aha moment. And I've had a couple of them where you say, this is, this is something, this might be it. And I've brought some of that information to police and some of that information they weren't aware of before that they didn't even have before. So that part is gratifying. Hopefully we're moving in the right direction toward them figuring out because at the end of the day the police have to figure it out we're not going to do it the cops have to be the one to prosecute the case so do you think in jody's case specifically there's something to the fact that okay you have this beautiful young woman she disappears in a parking lot you know just just hearing that there's a beautiful young woman she disappears in a parking lot most people can tell you the rest of the story yeah. some some man who was a terrible person um, grabbed her off the street and, and she's gone. Do you think that people disregard stories like hers because we know what happened, mm -hmm. but we don't know who did it? Yeah, I know what you mean. I don't think we can ever say Jody's case was disregarded. Her case receives a lot of media attention. And um, lately the team has kind of been focusing also on other cases from the area 
from Mason City that haven't received any coverage at all. And that's what I do across the country with my show status pending is we try to highlight cases that don't get that kind of media attention. I think Jody got a lot of attention because she was in uh, the media. She was in the media and she was also doing something we all do every day, which is go to work. She was abducted in the course of her everyday business. I think it strikes a chord with women, especially when something like that happens. And there is something too, and we as a team have talked about this on a podcast episode. She does cert, she fits a certain victimology that the nationwide media audience responds to. And what young I mean, blonde, by hot chicks. young blonde, white specifically, um, women who go missing. We had some of that this last summer with the Gabby Petito case. Another show I host is called Dead and Gone in Wyoming, which is more of a storytelling podcast based on real cases. And her body was found in Wyoming. That was the case of the summer last year. We get one or two of those cases nationwide every year that just envelop the national attention. Gabby was the case last year. And I got a lot of feedback on that from the audience of that show because I had covered and taken the time and effort to cover the missing and murdered indigenous women issue in North America, but specific to that show in Wyoming where these women of native ancestry are exponentially more likely to be the victim of violence or be murdered or go missing. So I was asked about that quite a bit with all this intention on Gabby. And I'm not sure I have a great answer to that. Um, it's, it's sort of shorthanded as missing white girl syndrome, missing white woman syndrome. But I mean, the media is coming from somebody who works in media the media is almost a mirror to society. We're going to give you what it is that you want. We figure it out through ratings, through clicks, and we really hopefully do some journalism along the way, but we exploit that for financial benefit because we're owned by corporations that have stockholders that have to make money. So I think that's a very complex issue as to why certain victim classes get attention and others don't. But one of the the reasons is it gets ratings like Gabby gets rating, got ratings this summer. Jody got ratings. So that is another aspect of why I'll never say that Jody has received too much attention. I, I wish every cold case got as much media attention as Jody's gotten over the years. Do you think that anything outside of some evil dude just picked her up is what happened? No, I think that's what happened. I think the question is, was this person known to her? You know, who was this guy? The problem with Jody's case now, especially, is she was on television. Not only that, but her information was in the phone book. Her name, her personal home phone number, her unit number, and her apartment complex address were in the Mason City public phone book. So you have a suspect pool of like 500,000 people that need to be theoretically looked at. That makes Jody's case very tough. And I'm still open in fact, I'm more than open. I, sometimes I think it's more likely that the reason we haven't caught this guy is because he doesn't fit the norms. He's not known to her. He's not close to her. He's doesn't have past interactions with her. There's no trace of this guy, somebody we've never heard of. And his infatuation with her brought him to that parking lot. Things got a little bit more out of control quickly than he was expecting. And he panicked and took her and obviously at some point killed her along the way. But I think that's just as likely, if not more likely, as any of the other named suspects that people have been talking about in Jody's case over the years. It could just be anybody. So you think it's more likely 
stalker than random random evil man with opportunity. Everybody who's been brought up in Jody's case, the names that people who are familiar with it are aware of, I, I have pros and cons against them being involved. But I do think we discount the stalker element too much because it's too big. It's We don't know where to start. It's so ambiguous. So I, I definitely think it's possible. I think the stalker, I'm not going to say more likely than any other, but I, I definitely think that's something that could have happened where an infatuated viewer who only lived in Mason City for six months, let's say, showed up her, at her apartment expecting one thing, things got out of hand. And then we have to ask ourselves, why hasn't this person been caught? People are quick to be harsh against Mason City police. And had this crime occurred today, there's no way the guy gets away with it with cameras and cell phone technology and all that. But the FBI was on this case. The DCI was on this case. Some smart people were working this case. So what does that tell us about this person? I think the lack of a, an arrest can tell you something about a person and that this guy isn't going to fit the boxes. He's not going to fit the profiles of who you might think would do this. So somebody who has never been to prison again, um, has never committed any kind of crime like this ever again, lived in Mason City for nine months during 1995, and now lives across the country, and nobody else knows. I think that's possible. When you have these long, drawn-out, unsolved cases, and then they get some attention, and you have amateur sleuths digging into it, and you're discussing it online and on Twitter. When those cases are solved, how often was one of the suspects a name that was being thrown around? The Golden State Killer, was he a suspect that was being thrown around on the forum no. when he was found out? He was off the radar, but I think about him quite a bit because in my Jody work, after he was arrested, Joseph D'Angelo, there was a newspaper article that somebody had found that appeared like in the Sacramento, you know, even a smaller paper than that probably. And it's about the arrest of a police officer for stealing dog mace. And it drove me nuts because it was long suspected that this guy, the golden state killer was law enforcement or former law enforcement had a military background. And one of the things he would do on his rape excursions to deal with dogs is spray them with dog mace. You have a police officer in the newspaper. I can't remember how long before, like five or seven years before, maybe more. Well, I guess he wasn't caught for forever. So you have a, a cop who is stealing dog mace that shows up in the newspaper and nobody found that. Nobody found that data point. It, so that um, experience, I guess, with, with Joseph D'Angelo and just my watching that case I'll never forget it because I'm of the belief now that be it D.B. Cooper, be it any case, the data points are there. They're out there in the public domain, especially with cases from the newspaper age. We just have to know how to connect them. We just have to think about that research angle. What am I looking for? How am I going to find it? How am I going to connect it to this other thing? Um, so I think Jody's case is out. The answer is out there in some similar way. The data points exist. We just have not connected them yet in Jody's case. I'm sorry. I forgot your original question. How often? <laughs> um, I don't know. And I think Jody's case is unique because it's a very unique crime. It's a media personality abducted, never found, which is extremely rare. An abduction from a parking lot is extremely rare. 
to attack somebody in a parking lot is less rare, but you're either going to attack them and hurt them if that's your intention or attack them and kill them or attack them and rob them. There are a few reasons to remove her from that scene that aren't horrible. So it's a very rare crime happening in a part of the country where crime like that certainly doesn't happen. So I'm not sure we can put Jody's case in any box in any way. You know, we're looking at suspects or victimology or anything else. It's a very unique crime. I think that's part of the reason it hasn't been solved yet. One of the things I think is interesting about her case is the time that it happened. So if if you say, you know, Tina walks home from the bar and she gets assaulted in the parking lot at 1247 a.m., that time makes sense to me. That seems mm-hmm. like the, the time to get assaulted in the parking lot at 1247. Sure. Four o'clock in the morning is after all the shenanigans, but before most people wake up. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've had jobs where I had to get up very early in the morning and, and travel somewhere. And there's like a specific group of people that is out, I'd say from four to six o'clock in the morning. Right. You're talking about like going to the gas station and you see the the crowd that's at the gas station at four or five o'clock in the morning. Cause I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's people rubbing their eyes and getting a cup of coffee. Right. Interesting characters. Definitely. I think what that shows us in Jody's case and not as much the time of day, but definitely the time of day, but her, her car was parked like 12 steps from the egress point of their front door of her complex. So somebody was waiting for her because of the time of day and because of how short a distance it was, somebody was waiting to do something, talk to her, abduct her, anything in between. And then whatever happens got out of hand. Uh, it, it happened right there. And then, but that tells you something. That's a, that's the definition of a stock. You know, it's a stocking instant, literally stocking at that point. The only question is how long before is it hours? Is it weeks, months longer? And the other, um, frustrating thing with Jody is it's possible that she had some of these incidents going on in her life that were unrelated to another. So Jody could have had a long-term stalker up until June of 95, who had nothing to do with the disappearance. She may have multiple stalkers. She may have no stalkers, but somebody was waiting for her in the apartment parking lot. And at four o'clock in the morning, it's, uh, I think it's very likely she was stalked by the person who abducted her but I have no idea for how long or, or why or how many other stalkers she might have had, too. Because there was an incident in October 94, which is nine months before this happened, where she's been followed by a, a, a truck as she's rollerblading down the street. And um, that could be the same person. That could be somebody else. But I take that incident seriously because she is on television. She's used to being seen and talked to in public and waved to and stared at. Most of us aren't used to that. And she, that's part of why she got in the business is she doesn't not enjoy that attention. She was very warm to people, receptive to the community and the audience. But something about that truck incident nine months before she disappeared disturbed her enough, a woman that's used to being stared at, uh, to call police. That's, that's a not- really good point. She would be used to people looking at her from the other side of the restaurant or down yep. the aisle at the all store. the time. Yeah. Yep. All the time. So whatever this guy in the truck was doing, creeped her up, uh, creeped her out enough for her to call police. And it's hard to ignore when only nine months later she's abducted, but 
Don't know if it's involved or not. And of course, it was a white truck that's following her. There's only, you know, 500,000 of those in Iowa. So yeah, just like at the, there was a white van seen. At the exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. The well, I've most... driven a white van and a white truck many, many times for work. Actually, the... exclusively white trucks and vans. Yep. Then everybody else, especially in Iowa, a lot of farmers drive trucks and a white cargo van is, you know, everybody uses that for everything. So it doesn't help out a whole lot. All right. You brought up the newspaper era. You got a job working for the newspaper as a child. Yeah. Yep. So um, I grew up in Blackhawk, Colorado, which is now a booming casino town um, up the mountains from Golden. But back then it wasn't. It's a, it's a nice little spot. Looks nothing like it was when I was a kid. There were, I think at one point there was a slot machine at the gas station. And now there are 30 casinos probably from Central City all the way down to Blackhawk. Not a bad place. And it really helped out the economy. And that's great. But that's where I grew up. And my high school was, um, if you drive a little bit further up the road there from the casinos, you get to this school. It's a K through 12 still. And um, so I graduated with a class of 24 kids, many of whom who I'd known from young kindergarten, first, second grade, we all graduated together, which looking back was, it has its, its positives and negatives in many different ways, but it was pretty cool. And um, the football field up there is at like 9,200 feet elevation. I think it's the highest football field in the lower 48 um, elevation wise. There's a lot of things about Colorado in general, but that part of Colorado too, that I like growing up in, but it's, it's to say it's a small town. It's not a town, especially where I grew up. Um, it's a, a mile between houses kind of situation. So I was really into sports. I wanted to be in media for some reason. I wanted to be a writer. I had a romanticized idea about what a writer was. And so <laughs> when I was 12 or 13, I sent a fax to the Gilpin Gazette Crusader, which was a weekly newspaper that was free that uh, you could pick up at a couple of gas stations in town. Okay. How did you send the fax? Did you have to go to the library to do that? My mom had a fax machine because she ran her own business out of her house. So uh, this would have been um, 90, late nineties. So that was, that was some high tech probably in, in the late nineties. My mom did have a fax machine. I figured out how to use it. And I sent a fax to the editor and said, I will work for free. I'm 13 years old. I work in, uh, or I I go to, at that point, I guess, middle school, but I'll I'll cover school sports for free. And for some reason, they, I can't I think he faxed me back um, to say, call me or something like that. But the guy faxed me back and said, no, you, you will pay you. You can, you can write for the newspaper. So that was my school job. A lot of people worked at, you know, Subway or where I grew up, the casinos when they came around. My high school job was writing for the newspaper. Okay. Now I have to know how much did you make? That's not a question I usually ask, but I made, uh, if I remember right, I made like 50 bucks an article and I would, so I would try to squeeze in, I would try to get three or four articles printed in every edition so that I could make 200 bucks, you know, which for a kid, you know, that was pretty good money for me. Yeah. Um, and that wouldn't always work out. And sometimes, sometimes they'd run one, sometimes they'd run four, but what was nice about that looking back, I guess, is I would, I would churn out something every day. And that got me used to just creating 
content on the creator side, I guess. But unfortunately, as cool as that experience was, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have someone to tell me you're doing this right or you're not, you know, you're going one way or the other. The people in town would always have positive feedback on it, which is great, but that's not helpful. You know, that's not constructive criticism. So it took me a long time to hone my writing skills. I'm still doing it today, but it was a cool experience in that I, I got eventually credentialed for covering uh, Rockies, Broncos, all the universities out there in Colorado, all the different sports have a ton of fun sports stories I can tell from locker rooms and stuff like that. But by the time I was 18 or 19 going into college, I had seen sort of how the sausage was made in terms of sports. Most of the experiences I had were great, but some people my age now or older would look at me in the press rooms and the press boxes and say, Who the, who's this kid? You know, what's he doing here? And, you know, the athletes and the coaches were certainly no better at that. So I felt like I did what I wanted to do in sports journalism, which was what I wanted to, I thought I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to be Woody Page, you know, for the Denver Post. And by the time I was 18 or 19, I was done with it. I felt I had done it already. And um, so I moved into radio and that's where I've been since. So I've been in radio for going on 20 years after that. But I started in media when I was 13. I started podcasting in 2009, back when you had to hand code your RSS feed and just messing around with it, having no idea what I was doing. So I've been in media, small markets and small papers and small stations, but I've been in media for my entire life, basically. What did you learn about being a sports journalist that made you not want to do it? I think maybe what I realized, because I mean, talk about naive, um, 13, 15. I think what I realized is that it's a business and that was kind of soul killing for me, you know, I grew up idolizing certain people that then I got to meet and interact with, many of whom were great. Some of them weren't. I was taken under their wing by some reporters and others were uh, not as nice to me, which is great. I mean, it's an introduction to the world. That's life. That's the way the world works. But do I want to do this for the rest of my life? It, I, I felt at that time I had done it. I also had a belief um, which is maybe still partially true, that the newspaper industry was going in a different direction. So ironically, I picked radio, which has been around almost as long as <laughs> newspapers. But I, I don't know. I just lost a passion for it. It became a job, I guess. It, it At first, for several years, it was very, it was very exciting. And that's all I wanted to do. And I would drive. There's no distance I wouldn't drive to cover a game with press credentials. And this is my dream. And I'm like 15 years old. But as time wore on, it's, I don't want to go cover the Rockies. April, it's going to be cold. It's going to be, you know, it's a meaningless game. So I became almost jaded to it. And I felt like I had done it. I, I was just unimpressed with what I saw when I got there, I guess. And how can you not be? Because all you see is the show on TV, you know, you see the production, the finished product, but it's a business and there's people in it. And anytime there's a business with people in it, it's, there's going to be stuff behind the scenes that is disillusioning. So why'd you choose radio? I chose radio probably also because of sports. I wanted to be in play by play and um, I've done my fair share of play by play. 
Dave Logan. I'm a huge Bronco fan. Dave Logan's one of my heroes. So I think that's, I had to tell you something, Darren, that I don't, I don't often say. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be recognized as important. And I felt that media was probably the shortest path to that. And fortunately, I got wise to the craft of it and the journalism side of it. And now I do it for entirely different reasons. I now, ironically, don't as exposed. I probably I'm, I'm as seen and heard as I ever have been in my whole life right now. And that's the least part of the job I care about. Now I'm involved in entirely different priorities, but that's why I, I'm, I'll admit it that as a kid, it was cool when, you know, the, that your name was in the newspaper every week that you were writing in the newspaper every week. And it's that, that kind of wore off. It took a while, but now I'm in it for very different reasons, but I still love it. And when I say it now, I just like creating content. I like making people feel things. I like that. What's nice about radio is they call it theater of the mind where you have a hold of this person's brain. That's a extraordinary obligation. What are you going to do with this? You know, they're expecting, they have this set of expectations of a story or information or some inspiration or whatever it is. And then it's my job to give them that. That's a, that's a highly personal thing that I take really seriously. And that it was only at that point that I started getting adequately good at what I'm doing. Cause before it was just projecting, just content, just create it, just put it out there. That relationship with the audience now is what I'm trying to constantly strive for, whether it's writing through podcasting, radio, whatever it is. Theater of the mind, radio, podcasting, th this format, I am incredibly passionate about. I personally consume an insane amount of podcasts and talk. So radio what do you like to listen to? Because I, I work alone, but I'll, I'll tell you what I like to listen to. I want to tell I want to give you this Larry King. Well, it won't be a quote because I'm going to paraphrase it terribly, but I remember hearing Larry King say once. Like with radio, if you're watching a movie and there's a castle on a hill, you see the castle on the hill. That's somebody else's castle. They designed that and that's what you're looking at. But if you're listening to a radio show and you hear them say, and then they started walking up to the castle on the hill, mm -hmm. you have to imagine that. And so the castle that you're seeing, it's your castle. You created that right. castle. Right. That's, that's, um, Writing carries a similar connotation, but radio even more so because the interpretation of the writing is being done for you, but the imagination is entirely yours. You know, if you see something on television, that's one interpretation of a thing. And there are great movies and great TV shows, but it's through one lens. I can tell a story to 10 people around a campfire and they're imagining 10 different things. And then judge as you go judging their reaction on that only makes you better at understanding that and telling stories so yeah that's and and uh, most people don't know about larry king that he he's a radio guy going way back he did an overnight am radio show pioneering in that regard there's a great story about larry king that i hope is true where uh, way back in when he was young he used to have the job of off a teletype calling a baseball game 
So he wasn't looking at the game, but he would get the result of each pitch on like a telegraph or a teletype or something like that. So he would have to try to make that sound interesting. And he tells a story about that machine breaking at one point. And so he's stuck. He's got dead air because he's people are expecting the next pitch and he, he doesn't have anything to report. So Larry King proceeds to call foul balls for like 12 foul balls in a row until the teletype machine starts working again and he catches up with it. But yeah, Larry's an old radio guy. He was great on TV too. He's a great interviewer, but he, his radio stuff, it's probably still on YouTube is uh, awesome. If you want to see Larry King do radio, um, 1984's Ghostbusters. Oh yeah. He's, he's yep. doing radio and That's right. sm- smoking a cigarette. Yeah. You used to be able to do that. Fortunately you can't anymore. Cause I was a smoker. I quit when my son was born, but in my day, even you couldn't smoke in the booth, but if you could, I'd probably be dead already because that's definitely a radio thing. Just sitting there smoking in the booth. I am a huge Larry King fan. You know, you said you wanted to be, I already forgot the name of the writer, the sports writer for Denver Post, mm-hmm. but like I wanted to be Larry King. Even as a child, I remember watching Larry King with my parents and thinking like, man, it would be so cool if like I could be the guy that talks to all these cool, interesting people. Yeah. And I see that in your projects and your interview style is not dissimilar from Larry King. Too many interviewers now have agendas or they have angles or they're trying to get at something. This, he was a guy who just let the silence sit. And I've never seen a guy interject the most appropriate short questions that would lead to the, the most information from whoever he was interviewing. He's very good at that. Um, I'm also a big Tim Russert fan, but Tim was a different style. He was, I'm going to research and I'm going to know everything more than what you know about what you're talking about before you sit down. He was the old host of uh, Meet the Press. But good interviewing is a lost art. And the first advice I would give to anybody who wants to interview anybody for anything for media or for just learning is listen, don't so many of us are thinking of the next question that we want to ask while the other person is answering the question that we just asked, just listen, just absorb it and take your time and then respond that it's amazing. The number of big network media people who don't do that. Definitely (laughs) there to bring up one person regarding shows that I listen to. I listened to the Adam Carolla show a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to listen to him on Loveline. I did too. Yeah. When I yep. worked swing shift, my shift started at 10 on the West coast. So Loveline starts at 10 on the West coast. So I would you know, clock in like three minutes early so I could be on the floor with my earbuds in real quick to hear the show start. So I've always just been a fan of his and I, I listened to his podcast and he is a terrible interviewer. <laughs> he he will ask someone a question like, "Oh man, tell me, uh, tell me, I heard you just bought this new Camry. Tell me about that." Speaking of Camrys, I think they're shit. You should see these <laughs> yeah. Lamborghinis that I have in my other warehouse. They're amazing. Right, right. And then he just rolls over into the next question. And uh, you know, part of that is funny being a fan of his. But sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like. God damn it. I wanted to hear what that guy had to say. (laughs) You didn't even let him answer the question. That's the other thing about radio, especially is you have to be aware that when you have that person's attention in your hand, 
you don't want to jerk it around. You don't want to you know move it around because that will drive people nuts. Like just like you're describing. Were you an Art Bell fan? I was. Art was also a very good interviewer. He was good. his open lines on Coast to Coast from uh, the '90s probably are amazing to go back and listen to because open lines on coast to coast, God knows what you're going to get. People are going to call in and talk about politics. And the next person's going to call in and say, there's a blob in my kitchen who is asking me for a sandwich, you know, and you have to find a way to uh, intertwine all of those things. And he was amazing at directing that conversation in a useful entertaining way. Art Bell was another classic, great one. I remember this Art Bell episode. I, th- I think about it a lot. They were like discussing the JFK assassination, which was talked about often on that show. But this guy calls in and he had like this theory of how the Canadian government was involved in it. And it was just so ridiculous from the word go. And I wanted, I was just like driving my car, like, tell this, tell this guy to get lost. Why are you keeping him on the air? This is so ridiculous. This is so stupid. And he's, he's going with it and asking them like leading questions about right. it. And I have specifically thought of that one episode uh, during a few, a few interviews <laughs> I've done yeah. <laughs> on the Cooper Vortex, where one time I had this gal tell me that the way Cooper escaped from the airplane was he lowered himself out of the back with fishing line and then touched down on the mountains outside Reno. <laughs> And there is just like so much to unpack there. And when she said that, I was like, I, I don't think I understand how that worked. Like, could you explain that to me? He lowered himself down with fishing line and landed on the mountains. And right. then she basically just said the same thing again. Yeah. You know, he lowered himself down with fishing line until Obviously. he was able to touch his feet down on the mountains. And wow. I was like, okay, I just got to roll with that, I guess. Well, that reminds me of the current host of that show, Coast to Coast, George Norrie, um, different style. But what he does that's so subtle, but there are people calling into that show, much like the story you just told, people listening to that show who, uh, I don't know how to say this, but they're isolated from society. They're, they're outside of the norm, let's just say. And he does an amazing job of giving even the most preposterous idea dignity. And that's the most important thing that you can give to an audience member, especially of any controversial topic, because as soon as you take a side, especially in this day and age on anything, you're alienating a good part of the audience. So George will do a great job of maintaining some kind of morality and some kind of journalistic code, but also this person is calling up and telling me that there's a, a green man who visits them in their front yard every night. All right. Tell me about it. You know, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Just explain to me how that works. That's uh, that's definitely a quality we don't see in media anymore at all. It's in fact, it's going the opposite way. It's everything is here's my position. Here's why everybody else is wrong. And you've alienated half the audience, you know, what year did you get into terrestrial radio? 2000, probably 2002 or 2003. Okay. Were you ever a Howard Stern fan? Howard is one of the great interviewers that I've ever heard. And it took me a while to realize that because the first thing you think of with Howard Stern, anybody who's exposed, especially his show back in the nineties, yes. it was all, 
um, take your very, top off. You take your top off. I'm interviewing strippers and little people and all this, but um, so I wasn't a huge fan of that. You could, you can tell from subconsciously or not. If you know what you're looking for, you can see it right away. The guy is the best when it comes to organizing a segment, um, a piece of content, a block of content. What he's trying to get across might be objectionable to some people, but that the reason his organizational skills on the air are the reason that people couldn't stop listening to him. It's not because people often say with Howard Stern, I wanted to hear what he was going to say next, or I hate him so much. I had to listen to him. That's not what it was. It was his organization of the content on the air. It took me a while to realize what an adept interviewer he was. And really what I think it is ironically with him is he's very empathetic. He genuinely cares to learn and experience what you're experiencing as he's interviewing you. Another person that did not the empathy thing, but another person who organized himself on the air very well was Rush Limbaugh and people hated his guts because of his subject matter. But he was another, anytime you hear someone saying, I, I love him or hate him, you have to listen to him. It's not that you want to get pissed off. It's that they're organized, they're pros. They're organizing this content in a way where they know what they're doing. Howard Stern's there, Rush was there, but not many people can do that. I am live. a huge, or I should say, I, I'm going to say I was a huge Howard Stern fan. For my 14th birthday, I got this new stereo system and it could tune in stations in Portland and my old radio couldn't do that. So I was able to tune in from Winlock, Washington, Rock 101, KUFO. Mm -hmm. um, and Stern was <laughs> on in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I, I tuned in and I was, I was raised Mormon. So I, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't allowed to listen to that, you know, by 1999, I'd already heard his name a million times. And I just knew he was the shock forbidden. jock. Yeah. Yeah. And for, forbidden, um, you know, I, I occasionally got a glimpse at his E show that was like, you know, they put the black bars yep. over boobs and stuff. But I started really listening to that show. And it was the first radio show where I listened enough where like I knew everyone's name. I could tell you like who the producer of the show was and these other ancillary characters and, and recurring guests. And I feel like he he evolved as a broadcaster almost like the same way I evolved as a man. So when I tuned in, it was all like, take your top off and, and, and dick right. and fart jokes, which, right. you know, at 16, 17, like that's what I wanted. And then as, as time grew on, he went to Sirius. I instantly followed him. I was like, okay, he made that announcement. Now I'm going to radio shack to buy Sirius, which mm -hmm. is I'm, I'm old enough that that is really what I did. <laughs> and <laughs> I, his serious show was phenomenal. I loved it. And he, his contract ended in 2020 with Sirius and he, he re-signed and he's still, he's still going, but I had to quit. I had to cancel my Sirius because mm -hmm. I knew I would keep tuning in if I didn't, but he was a lifelong germaphobe. It's that's not like some shocking announcement from me that he openly discussed it on a show. And I think that COVID was 
his absolute worst nightmare. Um, yeah. In my personal opinion, I bet he hasn't really left his house since it started, um, except for emergencies. And now he's I've like heard about broadcasting him. from home. And I think what he wanted, the reason I think he resigned, this on my personal opinion, is that he wanted a big, giant farewell send-off show. He wanted accolades. He wanted people to applaud for him. And he couldn't get that by ending his show in December of 2020. I haven't followed him closely enough, especially after he moved to Sirius, I guess, to say one way or the other on on that. But, um, you know, I, I would suspect that he's a pretty and always has been an introvert. And a lot of guys in radio are. And that's the reason they're in radio. Part of the reason. And you brought up about his show in the 90s, how it was so well charactered. And people have to realize that it is a show. This is, you define actively on purpose on, say, a morning show, what the two, three, four, five, sometimes different personalities are going to be. Sometimes the names are real, sometimes they're not. They have to be authentic. So they have to be at least derivative of the people who are hosting these characters. But it's not real. You create character lanes for each of these individuals and every action and interaction on the show has to be authentic within that lane because this character would never do something like this or yeah that's totally something this character would do so your robbins on the howard stern show howard himself i think is most mostly a character i don't think that's him at all generally I, I think it has, it's some of it is it's authentic to him and it, it always has been authentic and comes across as authentic, but he, I think if you lived with Howard Stern for a month, every fan would be disappointed because it's not the guy that you're hearing on the air. It's a totally different, much more human guy. You know, I wonder about your theory there in terms of him getting a send off. He absolutely deserves one. You know, he's, his content was never my favorite but the more I learned about broadcasting, the more I gravitated towards some people that I knew now what they were doing. And my God, they're amazing at it. You know, it's like when you play a sport at some advanced level, you recognize what true greatness is sort of Howard's definitely in that category. So he doesn't need a send off. As far as I'm concerned, they can name the radio hall of fame after Howard Stern, definitely a wing of it anyway. But uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't followed him uh, a lot lately. I do have serious. I haven't listened to Howard in a long time though. And I read his book, but that's, uh, I, I guess I just kind of sort of like you said, the evolution of an audience member. I grew out of the content of his show. And then I've just admired him as a broadcaster since then. Yeah. His, his show transformed from the show me your tits to Hillary Clinton was on the show. Mm -hmm. um for a very serious like two hour long interview and his his show from 1999 to when hillary was on in 20 she was on in 2019 i believe um wildly different shows wildly yeah. different oh shows. yeah yep and i i have this is something i'm very passionate about because i listened to that show every single day scott like as soon as Sirius, the app came out and I didn't have to listen live. I could listen a little bit later or one of my second radios I could record, but only for an hour. 
So Mm -hmm. there were things I would plan at work. So I'm like, okay, I have to get this done in less than an hour because my Sirius in my truck only is going to record for one hour. Like I would plan, I plan my life around it. He did shows and specials where it was truly like appointment radio for me. And I didn't know anyone else doing that. Um, I loved his show. I loved everyone on the staff, but when COVID hit, like in my opinion, he just went absolutely crazy. The show became exclusively about COVID and exclusively about he'd read a news story. Oh my gosh. Oprah had lunch with three people and none of them were wearing masks. They're all going to get COVID and die and Mm. they deserve it. And it just became crazy and angry. And I've people on the staff started to leave and it just, I am honestly sad about it. When I canceled my serious, I was sad. Yeah. That's how much I loved this person. Well, I mean that though, that's the ultimate, I mean, that's the Holy grail, what you're describing of appointment listening, or I've heard it described as driveway listening, meaning I'm listening to something and I've pulled into my house, but I have to keep the car on because I have to keep listening to whatever it is on the radio. Very few people can do that. And Howard was definitely one of them for the COVID thing. Again, I haven't listened to Howard Stern in a while, but I know a lot of radio guys at all levels who were really affected by COVID in terms of a lot of them had to work from home. A lot of them couldn't, if they had co-hosts, they couldn't work with them directly anymore. And there's a wholly different dynamic. And it's amazing what tweaking your dynamic in a room can do. Um, Musicians, I imagine, would say probably something similar in in terms of studios or different instruments or whatever. But there are a lot of guys I know who quit because of COVID. Plenty were fired because of financial reasons, but they quit because of COVID because it's not fun anymore after they did their show from their studio at home for a year. It's not why they got into radio. I know a couple of guys who were like that. And like I said, with Howard Stern, I've never met him, don't know him, but what you heard on the air for so long is a character. And then I, I think the real Howard Stern, like a lot of famous, brilliant, talented people, that comes with a lot of torture. That's a lot of pressure. That's that's a lot. Like the relationship that you just described having with Howard Stern, he had with millions of people across the country. That's heavy, you know, on the creator side to manage that. And how do I deal with that? Where do I put that in my life? Cause he's still a human being and usually radio people insecure human beings, you know, and it's, it's, that's sort of what I was talking about earlier with seeing the sausage made in sports. It's like that in life across the board, you know, don't, they say, don't meet your heroes. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of of validity to just take what the package is, take what's presented, take the final work and enjoy that. And don't try to know the artist too much because it's going to be all downhill from there. Yeah. I think that's definitely well said. It's weird with radio because you're involved in the conversation, but you don't get to participate as a listener. So I was involved with the conversation with Howard Stern, you know, for in the beginning, 21 hours a week. And then he was doing four shows. So, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Now I'm only at 16 hours a week. And, you know, now he's doing three shows, 12. 
I have spent more time in my life listening to Howard Stern than my father. Um, mm-hmm. Not because my father is absent. Great guy. Love him to death. He's still around. He was always there, but I didn't sit and listen to him talk for four hours a day. Right. I mean, I don't know if I've ever done that, <laughs> but I did with, with radio and you become, you feel like you know the people and, and even like, I'm not the most famous person on the planet, but I've met people that were excited to meet me sure. and you can tell like, they feel like we're a lot closer than we are because I don't know you. Right. Oh, 100%. I get that all the time uh, locally here because I'm on the radio station locally. So I have to be constantly aware of it. And when I forget, I get reminded, Um, you know, people uh, lately, recently I was on a 2020 broadcast for Jody Husentrout. And so I've gotten that a lot lately. And it's bizarre to me because I don't see I'm thinking myself that way when I'm going to the grocery store. I'm not a, the last thing I'm expecting to talk about is Jody or whatever <laughs> else people want to bring up, but the people, and you know, it's weird because they start staring at you, which is weird. And then, you know, they look back because they realize they're staring and they stare again, trying to figure out who you are and where they know you from. And I've gotten that with my voice over the years too, where, you know, as soon as I start talking, people say, Oh, wait, you know, and it stops everything that was going on. And you have to explain for the thousandth time. Oh, yep. Yep. Thanks for listening. All that. So imagine that with Howard Stern, let's say, or any, anybody else on that level, imagine that times a million. You know, I can't imagine that you can't function as a human being and have relationships or any kind of mental space. When <laughs> the irony is when you've been so successful at, at what you're doing, people think they have that emotional attachment to you talking about Jody before that might be some of what's involved in her case, somebody who thought that they knew her when really it's just, there's, there's what you see on the show and what you hear on the show and what you hear in the podcast. And then there's the whole other person that you never bring to the air, but the audience, if you do it right, clams onto that. So you need that to be successful, but it also creates all those other inconveniences, I guess, for you. All right, Scott, I want to ask you, you got into, uh, the newspaper business in the, in the late nineties and in radio in the early two thousands at that point in time, newspaper been around forever. will be around forever radio. Oh yeah. Been around forever. It's going to be around for forever. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, that's, those are the dominant things. It's changed a little bit since 2003. Yeah. What have, what changes have you seen specifically in radio from Oh three oh. to today? In, I'm so talking many. like local market radio. Sure. I think the biggest thing that comes to mind is the responsibilities of somebody who works at a radio station to produce content. I mean, it used to be you had to show up to the morning show and you were done. And now I show up, I do the morning show. I also am the operations manager. So I deal with everything else in the building, including a small staff. And then you have to create digital content. You have to create social content. So you're a multimedia journalist almost, which many radio people, it's hard to be very, it's hard to be that good at all those different things. A lot of people are gifted in one area or the other, including myself. So that has been a big change. The introduction to podcasting and all the different audio options that you have for radio. I can remember when Sirius and XM were out there and then they merged and radio was freaking out, you know, like, oh, this is the end of radio turned out not to be. 
but we had to evolve and they've evolved since I refused to listen to Sirius XM at first. And then I did, and they weren't very impressive. And now I think it's great. I think they've come a long way too in, in their niche. So I, I, I'm, the content's always going to be there. Audio content will never go away. So what we're talking about is the medium. How are you receiving that content? Be it a podcast, audiobook, radio. So I think it's important to be open to evolve in that. But what I view myself as now is a creator of all these different kinds of content, whether it's a FM morning show, a country radio morning show that I do every morning or a daytime AM show that I do or podcasting about true crime or anything else. It's all coming from the, it's all the same thing differently. And radio is notorious for being slow at adapting to things like that. And they still, to some degree, are. So yeah, that, that's much different. Same with newspapers, though. Writing is always going to be there. I hope people are always going to be reading. It's good for culture. It's good for society. It's a, it's a great way to get ideas across, as is radio or audio. But that, obviously, newspaper has had to adapt. And they still are. And we all still are. So yeah, it's much, much different. I can remember the first day I got a job in radio, I actually remember having the thought, this is great. I'm never not going to work in radio ever again. I got in and I'm never going to do anything to get fired. So this is my life is made. I was fired twice after that, but I am still in radio and I'll always, I could be working in, in anything and I'll still be creating audio content on the side, no matter what happens. So I view it as just creating content and the medium is, is going to change over time, but people need their information. They need to be inspired. They need stories. That's never going to change. All right. Here's where I'm going to go to being the old man that says it was back back then. It was better (laughs) in 2000. And I can't, the idea that I'm using 2000 is back in the old days is, is insane also. Yeah. But in, in 2000, if you, walked up to a hundred people and said, you know, what do you listen to? Most of those people are going to say something on the radio. They're going to say, I listen to um, 98.7 KUPL or, you know, 94.7 NRK. That's what I listen to. Sure. Um, that, that's what there was to listen to unless you wanted to play a CD. There wasn't a lot of places to go to listen to something. If you're going to listen to something, it's radio. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it's going to be. But now, if you walked up to 100 people and said, what do you listen to? You're going to get 100 completely different answers. Yeah. And I don't know how many are radio. How many people are going to say, oh, I love listening to 105.1, the buzz. That's a great point. And we've talked about that increasingly. And I've had conversations with my small staff along those lines. And what I tell them is the days of exactly what you just said. I listened to 99.9 are going quick. Uh, The demographics are changing quick. There are too many options out there. So what I want you, my staff to focus on is when people are asked that question, I want them to say your name, not necessarily the radio station, but your show. I want you to have that connection with the audience because that is no different than it's ever been. It's no different than it was in Howard Stern's golden age of radio. That's no different than any podcast that they're listening to. Their attention is more divided than ever before, which makes it harder in some 
uh, technical ways, but you still have the capability of being the answer to that question. You can still be the person that they go to first, that they are most excited about listening to. Cause that's what, that's how people answer that question. People don't answer that question necessarily with what they listen to most, which might be the same answer, but they answer the question from a, a an old school viral um, mentality of I'm excited to share this with you, not only so you can hear it, but also it will reflect well on me. Maybe if I tell you about this and then you like it, and then that's something that I've introduced to you personally. So individual, you know, word of mouth marketing. That's what I tell my guys is, and I, what would my corporate structure think of that? They'd have a hard time with that because they they own radio stations, but they're built around personalities. And that's one area where radio has failed pretty consistently over the last 20 or 30 years almost now is the homogenization of radio where we get into voice tracking, where you've got guys in Lincoln, Nebraska, voice tracking in Washington and California. They don't even live in these places and you hear them on the radio locally there. And that's just the nature of the business, I guess. But one-on-one individually, your job is to connect with the audience just as it always has been. So yeah, I, I think the days of I listen to this radio station and it's my go-to yeah, media choice in like in that example you just gave her long gone. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's just uh, we change and we adapt to it. It's all about making the connection with the audience. And that's where it's always been. I, I think there it's good and bad. The, the good part is it'll allow anyone any dummy who wants to start a radio show, even about a niche subject, like a 50 year old unsolved skyjacking can do that. <laughs> and you can do that and you can have some success doing it. Uh, you just keep doing it, keep putting it out there. Someone will listen to it. But one thing I do miss is I miss going into work and saying, Jack, did you hear what they said on the radio this morning? And he was listening to it on his commute in also because right. we didn't That's have 10 bazillion choices of what right. to listen to. It was, you are going to listen to the radio on your way into work. And I, I find that, you know, not just only with radio now, but even, even movies, like a movie would come out when I was a kid and everyone at school would quote that one movie. Oh, remember that funny line from Ace Ventura? Well, we all knew it and saw movies multiple times. We all consumed similar media there were only a handful of channels there's only a handful of radio stations this is these are my choices if i want to be entertained this is the entertainment that i have access to my family was wealthy enough that we had radios and we had one or two tvs but everything is so splintered now and people are listening to completely different things Uh, even as a howard stern fan it went from the point where a lot of people were listening and then we went to Sirius and the the audience was smaller and it, it, it grew a little bit, but it went from something that everyone knew about and talked about to now. I think a lot of people don't even know that he's still broadcasting. Yeah, sure. That's a commonality thing that we'll probably never see again. If, if uh, somebody tells you about a TV show they're watching, the first thing you ask, if you don't know, is what service is it on? Is it on Netflix or is it on Prime or is it on, you know, you don't even necessarily know where to find it. That's true. And that's a good point in that 
there's that cultural stuff that we don't have in common that is probably gone forever. And that extends all the way to news. I mean, look at now you can go, we no longer have to accept anything, uh, any kind of common ground because the information sources are so splintered. So I can find the information source, the news channel, the website, whatever that exactly fits my ideology and I can go get all my information from there. Why do I have to go anywhere else? Because that's where I'm comfortable. So that's what happened with facts in news media, you know, at the same time. Literally, it's the same phenomenon. That's not good. You know, that's that's something that we have less in common. And I think that's a road that we're going to have to cross. Um, but you're right. The, uh, you know, when it comes to podcasting, there's only a handful of shows that uh, that I think people would recommend that I, you know, that are household names, you might say. But at the same time, I also like, I've introduced your show to plenty of people who I thought might be interested. There is something cool to introducing something new to somebody else, which we can now do with podcasting. Your show's a favorite one of mine if I think they're interested in D.B. Cooper at all. There's a show that is a go-to for me called Cocaine and Rhinestones, which is a 20th century history of country music. And um, I'm writing that one down. Yeah. Cocaine and rhinestones. Great show. But there are tons of niche podcasts like that that don't get the Joe Rogan numbers. But I'll tell you, I've I, I've listened to Joe Rogan, but I'm not listening to three or four hours of Joe Rogan every, you know, twice a week or whatever. So it is fun to be able to introduce something new to somebody else. But we probably have lost that commonality with did you see friends last night? You know, that kind of thing is probably gone. Oh, yeah. I, it was everyone consumed the same stuff. Right. Now, is that good or bad? I'm, I don't know. I don't know at the end of the day whether or not that's good. I like that content creation has been democratized. I like that people like you are empowered to create shows, people like me, for that matter. But um, I, I think that, I guess, in a free market um, analysis of the culture, that um, the more the more content you create, theoretically, the better content that is created because the good stuff rises to the top and the more good stuff you have, the better. This obviously happened before with TV. There used to be four networks and that was it. And then cable came along. So was our childhood's generation, were we better off because of cable in the long run? Or we would we rather have had those four networks stay for, for our entire lives? I think more content created by different people is better, but it's a bumpy road, as you say. Yeah. I, and then after cable, now there's YouTube and my, my kids don't even really know what a TV channel is. No, like, no. And it's, it's great when um, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and when they want to watch something, they tell me what they want to watch. And occasionally I'll say, well, I'll see if it's on. And they say, what, what do you mean? It's always on. You push the button and you make it out. They have no concept of we came home from school and we watched whatever happened to be on the television at whatever time it was. And that's the show that we watched because there was no other choice. Now these kids can watch whatever they want, whenever they want. I'm not sure if that's good or not either, but yeah, I don't know. Especially some of the choices my kids have made in watching, in watching TV. Like my, when my daughter was younger, she used to watch this girl or it wasn't a girl. It was a woman. She used to watch this woman play with these frozen dolls. And do voices. Yes. And very creepy. I it think. had 27 million views on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching this and I'm like, you have those dolls. 
like when I watch a video about a Lamborghini, it's because I don't have a Lamborghini. I'm, I don't get it. You have those dolls. Why don't you just play with those dolls? But then I was like, okay, now I got to look this woman up. And it was like, oh, and she's making $700,000 a month doing this. I was like, yeah, what? Somebody figured out a couple of people figured out that kids like watching kids play with toys or other people play with toys. If I were to realize that I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. I'd be on a beach somewhere, but yeah, it's amazing. And some of that stuff is not Healthy. And I don't know how old your kids are. 11 and seven. 11 and seven. So older than mine, seven and four. But then the question is even more pertinent to you. With what I do, with the content that that I create, I'm increasingly aware about how much of this do I pass on to my kids? Because we're talking about missing people. We're talking about murders. And so like my son, for example, who will be eight shortly, knows who Jody was and knows occasionally dad has to go on trips and look for Jody, but obviously don't give any specifics about that but that's kind of interesting as a parent because i'm never going to press any of my interests on my kids but i also want them eventually when they're adults in my case to be aware of the work that i did sort of a, a legacy thing and the reasons i cared about it and why i thought it was important for me to spend time doing it but that's touchy in true crime land i think because it's it's very dark subject matter. But with your kids, how interested are they in, say, D.B. Cooper? Well, D.B. Cooper is a lot easier. No one was hurt. Exactly. Um, the only person that might have died in this is Cooper himself. Right. Uh, which we, we don't even know that. So that's a lot easier. I, I've talked to a couple other true crime people, and it's like talking about the dark stuff is, is always odd. Like it's and I don't know. That's one thing where I'm really glad that my case doesn't have a, a rape or a murder or a kidnapping. It's a lot cleaner. Yes. Than, it's more fun. There's more fun too. than many of the yeah. other cases. Yeah. And there are, there are children's books about mm-hmm. DB Cooper. Um, there aren't, I'm, I hope there's not a lot of children's books about like the Zodiac or Ted Bundy. You know, yeah. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> you never know, but yeah, no, that's true. It's just um, things you don't think about. And as time goes on, you know, it's just like anything else is sports. I'm not going to um, force my kids to play any sport, but do I hope they do? Yeah, because I want to go watch their games or would I rather they play a specific sport than not? Yep. But I'm not the, the type of parent that's going to push them in any direction. And then it's it's odd to think at some point they're going to grow up fully mature. And, and dad's got this whole catalog of really bizarre you know, content with bizarre subject matter. Um, it's just something I think about. I was asked that by CNN also has an upcoming special on Jody and I was interviewed for that and they asked about the impact on the, the family. And yeah, that's part of it. Um, time away, mental time away. I have to, I limit myself to two hours a day, no more than two hours. If I go over that, I reach a point of diminishing return. I start getting snappy with people. I don't spend obviously enough time where I should be spending time, but it's easy to get sucked down the rabbit hole, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with that phenomenon. It, my family, I think they just tend to kind of roll their eyes when the subject comes up. Um, I think my wife puts up with it, tolerates it. Um, she thinks the show is cool. Is she a fan of the mm-hmm. show? No. Does um, she listen to it? No. Yeah, mine doesn't either. <laughs> it's so funny. It, 
every single person I've talked to at the podcast, I, I'll ask them, do your friends and family listen? And it's always, no. My friends do, uh, most of them. In fact, more than I know, I'll get comments from people about a new episode that I didn't even know they listened. My wife, no. She, she probably hasn't listened to a, an episode in years of any of them. And I have four of them. I just, I mean, the last thing my wife wants to do in her free time would be listen to me <laughs> listen talk to about D.B. Exactly. Cooper. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Probably the same here. How have you seen, you know, working for a radio, this could be a little bit of a touchy subject, but how have you seen ratings change in radio from when you started to today? That's a good question. Um, they, the overall share of the audience has definitely gone down. But when you ask that, I'm trying to think of within that, has anything changed? Because how do um, you get ratings in radio? It's like some self-reported thing, or do they carry well, around a device? One thing that has changed is when I got into radio, it was all done by what they call a book, which was a diary that you were paid some nominal 25 bucks or something by Arbitron used to be the company. And you would write Arbitron, down that's right. what you listened to. Like during every 15 minute period of the day where you listen to radio, you were supposed to write it down. That is still the case in, in some areas of the country, but now they've moved on to what uh, they also sold the company to Nielsen and they have PPMs or personal people meters, which is actually very Orwellian kind of a 1984 phrase come to think of it um, personal people meters or something in a Scientology maybe, but these are devices that do track your listening automatically and they actually the PPM markets, they can get down to minute by minute, you know, exactly what you were listening to and for how long. And there again, that kind of detailed information is, is a double-edged sword, but that's, that's where I've seen it change. And what's the difference being the diary markets used to be as I'm writing in the diary, maybe I'm doing it as I listen, as I am instructed to, but maybe also I've gotten to the end of a busy day and I haven't written anything down yet. And so what's going to come to top of mind is what I was probably listening to Howard Stern there and, and you fill it in. So that phenomenon changed how people entered their diary entries changed how radio stations marketed themselves. It's the science within the science PPM. Also when that came along was, I think an overall net negative because the ratings drive everything. And so if a specific song wouldn't test well, this is also, by the way, the reason that songs on the radio keep getting shorter and shorter is because they'll see the diary entries or the PPM entries and say, we're losing people, you know, at this end half of the bit or this end half of the song or whatever. So we have to change that. And radio management is notorious for being on the sales side, not the programming side. So they'll make what seem like good on paper decisions and the art of it is lost, you know? So it's changed. Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, it's changed quite a bit. Um, I'm in a small enough area where I don't have to worry about ratings because we're in big markets. We're in medium markets, but we're in the middle. So we're in a couple of them. So I'm not ratings driven, which is probably a good thing for my career. Yeah. Where do most people listen to the radio today? Is it in the car? It's still in the car. Yeah, I probably always will be in the car. Yeah, the days of listening at home are all obviously gone. Mobile and streaming listening, website listening are are ever increasing, but in the car is still where that listening is happening for sure. People don't listen at home? No. I mean, if they might stream, uh, they do stream more and more radio stations, but they're doing that while they're listening to other 
podcasts or watching TV or doing other things in the car is the most active listening experience too. Because if I'm listening to a radio station in the kitchen, God knows what's going on around me. But uh, I think about that a lot as a podcaster. Where are people listening to me? What are they doing when they're listening to me? How much of their attention do I have? But for radio, it's in the car. Um, if they ever take radios out of cars, which they will someday, we better be positioned on the mobile apps to be competitive because that's going to be the end. That's going to be the end of. That's going to be the end of it. There's no reason to have a radio tower, broadcast this very expensive thing broadcasting over the air when most people are listening over the air in a different way through Wi-Fi or whatever. So that is a bridge that's going to get crossed probably in my lifetime. I'm, I'm sure. Well, there's many cars now where AM or FM isn't the default position for mm-hmm. radio in the car. Right. It's, are you going to plug in a device? Um, yep. If you're not going to, then you have to click over to go to FM. Right. And the one thing radio can still do better than tech is in emergency situations, because the first thing you lose is in a tornado or a hurricane or whatever is your internet, your phone. So radio is always going to be around in some kind of capacity, but entertainment radio day to day, what you listen to every morning, that's changing all the time. And radio has always been too slow to adapt to that, but it's an industry. It's a corporate industry. So that's the way it is. One thing radio's done that really pisses me off is this loss of being local. Um, mm-hmm. you, you touched on it a little bit, but there are, are many radio stations in my area where it's either no DJ or it's someone that's just canned in with no location on purpose. So they could be everywhere. Um, they're not going to talk about the fact that it's raining because the show's also on in Phoenix. So right. it doesn't make any sense to do that. And just it's, it's local. You think you turn it on, you want it to be someone that said, can you believe that they built that uh, new Trader Joe's right across the street from that elementary school? It's so weird. Right. And you're like, yeah, I can't believe they did that either. Yep. That's uh, a phenomenon of the late eighties, early nineties called syndication. But that's also, you know, there again, good with the bad without syndication, Howard Stern doesn't exist without syndication. Coast to coast AM never exists. But even so, Stern being syndicated, like he was on Rock 101, KUFO. But then every other show on that channel was local. Was local. You had, yeah. You know, Court and Boomer that would come on and, you know, you could go see them at the local concert if you wanted to. Oh, there's no, Court and Boomer. So my favorite in Denver, KOA used to be one of my favorite. I used to want to work at KOA. Uh, that would have been my life dream. Um, and they held out for a long time. In fact, there was an overnight guy called Rick Barber who did this great overnight variety show. He talked politics. He talked UFOs. He talked all kinds of different stuff. And it got to a point where he would have me on once a month to talk politics, whatever was going on. I did that for years. And they eventually cut him. And they've cut, as far as I know, I think their morning show is local. And then Dave's Dave Logan's afternoon show is local. Everything else is syndicated and satellite. It's just the nature of the business. And that, that breaks my heart because the soul of a radio station was the local content. You would have Rush on political stations. You would have Howard Stern on even music stations, um, things like that. 
but as margins got tighter and these stations got corporately owned more and more, it just, it got out of control. Same with voice tracking, syndication, all this remote programming. It looks good on paper and it's just a terrible creative decision. These decisions are being made in a vacuum of what is the heart of the radio station, what the actual connection with the local audience is with the radio station. And that ship, unfortunately, is long sailed. That's never coming back. Not in, in that sense on a radio station. Those days are gone. I used to fight as hard as I can. I still do for local programming. But I know for sure that when you lose a local day part, when you lose a local show, it is never coming back. That's just, that's the way it is. That was probably the beginning of the end for radio, actually. I can't remember the station specifically, but there was one station I used to listen to that like overnight switched to this format where it was called like Charlie FM or Donna FM, where they were bragging about the fact that they don't have a DJ anymore. They're just going to play music. Jack FM. Yeah. And I, I was like, you could get that any other way. Mm -hmm. You could play random music. You could put shuffle uh, on your iPod. You could listen to a device. If you just want random music, why are you doing that? Like the whole point of, in my opinion, the, the radio is to get, you should be getting a unique experience when you, when you yes. tune it on 98, 7%. 100%, 1000% right. And they're business decisions. They're not creative decisions. And radio is starting to wise up to that a little bit and understand local. But as they're coming around to that, they're also having to fight this digital battle also with digital content creation number of posts that you have to put up on the website a day and social media platforms. And that just adds to the, uh, to the overall problem. So I love radio, but really at the end of the day, I've come to the realization that this radio that you and I are talking about from our childhood and before is never coming back in the same way. You know, we're not going to fall asleep listening to coast to coast for much longer. Um, the Howard Stern golden days, all that stuff is, is gone. The appointment listening side of radio, I still fight for with my local personalities, but we've only got a couple of guys in the building and we've only got a day part each. And so you do the best you can with with that. And then you focus your passion on digital. And that's why I re got back into podcasting after messing around with it in 2004, because eventually I I saw this is is going in a, a different direction. So I don't... I've never been trying to make a million dollars or be, you know, the most successful podcast out there, but I, I always want to be creating audio content. If it's not going to happen on the radio, then it's going to be a podcasting or some other form. But every one of these evolutions is also an opportunity for, for us. You know, it's a, without these evolutions, you wouldn't have your show, which has become such a, a big part of your life. And same for mine. And this new show that you're doing, and it's always on to the next thing. And that's just the nature of life. What's the future for terrestrial radio? And what's the future for the medium of the spoken word? I think radio, as it evolves, will hang on correspondingly. I think as long as it becomes relevant in the surrounding market, how people, um, how people receive content, that will define how long it sticks around. But this notion of um, of radio towers, terrestrial broadcasts, will eventually be lapped by technology. And radio in its its current form will always exist, but not not in an entertainment capacity. 
um, when 5G becomes 8G or whatever, you know, comes next with our wireless capabilities and satellites and things like that, then um, radio as we know it, where I'm sitting in the booth at five o'clock in the morning, because that's when people drive to work, will go away. It will become even more on demand than it already is. But the core is always going to be the same. People are still listening to whatever they're listening to for the same reasons. They just have a lot more options. So um, spoken word, I'm not worried about at all. Radio will eventually evolve into some kind of platform of digital content. It already is. But spoken word is human. It's innate. This is stuff we do, whether it be on Zoom or sitting around a campfire, through social media, through videos, whatever it is. People need stories. They need to be informed. They need to be entertained. They need to be inspired. And spoken word will always be one of the best ways to do that when in the right hands. So the mediums are always going to change. They're ever evolving and always have been. But content creators who have content to share, even with a small audience, even with a niche audience, are going to find that audience and vice versa. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't, I don't know what I think the future of radio would be. I mean, when Howard left, I assume that was the last time anyone had crazy numbers in radio. Rush, Rush continued true. on for a little bit after that. He did. I think Rush's numbers were similarly kind of peaked around that same time. Um, sports continues to do really well on the radio, but personality radio... Uh, yeah, I mean, that might be, that might be it. I mean, you might be looking at when it comes to syndicated personality ratings, radio, it probably started whenever rush started in the early eighties and then there's Howard. And then they both, I would bet peaked at about the same time. And that might be that window that might be in terms of syndicated radio ratings. That was probably the best it was going to be. Um, you don't see, uh, radio numbers near as much as you did 10 years ago, for one thing. And um, I mean, before television also, going back to the 50s, 40s and 50s, television is what put the dent in radio ratings, you know, to begin with, because there was a day when everybody would gather around the radio and listen to the, you know, the Western stories or the fireside theaters or whatever they were listening to. And then TV comes along. So this is not new. It is sad in a way, though. We're kind of waxing nostalgic here because. If you're a fan of any audio content, which for us was radio growing up, it does break your heart when that day comes where it moves on. But I wonder about my kids, what's their attachment to audio going to be? You know, what what's coming up next after Joe Rogan or whatever the next podcast craze is? What are they going to be that emotionally attached to? It's just the evolution, I think. It's... Very sad because I would love, as every old man, I would love for, you know, the way things were to stay the same, but that's, that's just not going to happen. It never has happened. Why do you think that hardcore fans of specific shows start to hate the product while remaining a hardcore fan? I'm thinking maybe of like your experience with Howard Stern, right? Or, or Howard Stern, definitely. Um, and I couldn't go on a lot of the, the forums and groups because it was all just like, do you guys even like the show? It was just all nonstop hate. Mm. But I found that, I mean, go on the Reddit page for, for Joe Rogan or go on 
um, the Reddit page for uh, Crime Junkie. Um, oh, yeah. It's hate. It's sure. mostly hate for the product that they love the most. And I that I don't understand. So I was never, you mentioned Crime Junkie. I was never a big listener of theirs, but I talked to Ashley Flowers on the phone. She had called me for some unrelated um, thing. And I felt bad when that whole thing came about with them because she seems very nice. I think they're coming at it from the right way. And she's definitely found a niche with her podcast. She got wrapped up in a plagiarism issue a couple of years ago. And I still see people mentioning that to this day. And I get it. Plagiarism is, is not good. And I'm not defending it in any means. But it is amazing how people get latched onto that one thing. And that becomes the hate that you're talking about with a specific show. And then when you add the internet, the anonymity that you can comment facelessly that you would never say such things you know, in person just adds to it. Um, but to answer your question, I think... People become disillusioned with any content when it breaks their contract with you, with the listener. If you've come to expect a show of certain content delivered by characters that stay in their lanes and are obligatory to the overall message of the show and it all works together and you like that initially, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. That's how you become a super fan of whatever it is. That goes for TV, that goes for radio, for books. But as soon as that artist, whoever's creating that content evolves and they try something different or they want to evolve a character out of a specific lane, fans don't react well to that because it's not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the agreement that you and I made. This is not the show that I fell in love with. And with your Howard Stern experience, it was the content when he started straying from it. And I mean, there are examples in media going back to there's that, uh, what was that show where was it Fonzie jumped over the shark? Happy days. Happy days. Yeah. Um, jumped over. The, and that that's a famous example in media. They, there's a phrase for it called jumping the shark where you have left your, you've left your lane. So I think that's, that's why I have a, in my office at work, I have a poster or a piece of paper that I printed out. And all it says is radio audience is not given away. No, Sorry. Radio audience is not taken away, it's given away. Meaning once you have them, the only th person that can screw that up is you. The only person that can mess up that agreement that you've made with the audience is you. And that's great for a period of time, but every artist wants to evolve. You know, you want to become something different. I'm glad Howard Stern explored his interviewing skills because I've learned things from him, but that was at a part of his, his career where he was no longer interviewing strippers and doing the original show. So it might be inevitable that every show, if it keeps going, if you keep doing it, people are going to find a reason to not like it because it's not what it originally was. It's not what they originally liked about the show, but then you'll have fans who come along later. And some people I'm sure like the later Howard Stern work or like the later, whatever it is. So I think that's why that's why people stop liking a show because it becomes integral to them in that very personal way. And then it gets changed and people don't like that. Yeah. They're not taken away. They're given away. I like that right. quote. That's a good quote. Cause uh, 10 years ago and before that with Sirius XM, people in the industry were saying, 
Sirius is taking all the audience away from radio. And I was thinking to myself, that's not how that works. We, they can't take the relationship I have with my audience. I can give it away. I can become untrue to that agreement I made with them, but there's no reason for them to look anywhere else if they like the time they're spending with me right now. Same for podcasting. That's universally true for all media, all content creators. Once you have an audience, they, they can't be taken from you. You can give them away, but they're, they're, they're yours. And that's, that's what I work toward in creating content. And that comes with a huge seriousness for uh, respect. That's the word I'm looking for of uh, ultimate respect for your audience's time. Okay. I'm going to tell you where serious went wrong. All right. Cause I, I, I have all the answers to this. So serious comes out serious XM, both of them, basically in the beginning, it was about content. They were going after people who produced great original content. Let's get Opie and Anthony. Let's grab Howard Stern. Let's see if Oprah wants to do a channel over here. Um, let's get all of the sports on this platform. Music, you can really get a lot of different places. But once Howard signs with Sirius, there's only one place where you're going to hear him then. And even after that, I felt like they were still developing talent mm -hmm. and, and going after exclusive content. Um, yep. Bubba the Love Sponge was on there. Uh, Scott Farrell was on there. There were a lot of really good shows. And then I think around 2010, maybe dragging on until 2015, it seemed like they stopped caring about original content and talent and leaned more into let's play more music. We can get yeah. more of these comedy channels where it's just canned bits. Same thing happened with radio. Exact same trajectory, you know, over... 10, 20 years. And uh, it's talent is more expensive and original content is probably the most expensive thing, but you can't buy that relationship with the audience. You just can't, you can't put a canned comedy bit or any canned material out there. They spent so much money on Howard Stern too. I think that kind of put them upside down for a period of time um, too. And there's their initial subscribership. If I remember right, really peaked with Howard and then it leveled off and dipped a bit. And then they're also a public company, so they have shareholder issues to worry about. So that's a company that constantly has to be posting a positive number. And that's its own pressure that kind of tends to take over the creative side. Definitely. I want to go back in time and just talk to the CEO, Johnny Sirius or whatever his name is. and be like, <laughs> dude, you're going to ruin it. It's all it's such a great idea. Content. Yeah. Why did you choose to start podcasting early on before it was cool? I loved the tech and this is how insightful I was. When I first started, I messed around with internet radio because this concept of you can listen on demand, that's never going to go anywhere, right? Why would people want to listen on demand whenever they want, when they can stream me, when I tell them they have to, but that was my first thing. It did take me a while to come around to um, podcasting. And back then that was the only difference. This was appointment listening versus on demand listening. And I did get wrapped up in the tech and thank God, none of the original content I created survives because I'm sure it was atrocious. Oh, um, 
and then I stopped for a while when I got into live radio and there was not, when I got into radio, there was no concept of podcasting and any on-demand, you know, you weren't posting your bits to websites. First radio stations I worked for all the way up into the current one I work for now, I started in 2009 here and we didn't have a website when I started here in 2009. So all that is new to radio. Again, they're very slow to adapt. But once I started personally consuming podcasting and really what changed that was Apple podcasts because everyone's got an iPhone, you know, the majority of when, as soon as they stuck that podcast app, uh, Steve jobs, one of his many brilliant innovations was that think about that from his perspective, this is content I get to aggregate to people that other people create for free for me that I get to introduce to people. Uh, sort of what he did with the Apple Music Store in a different way. But as soon as he put that app on the phone, that changed everything. And then comes in my genre, um, the huge uh, podcasts that people listen to initially. But even that was only like five years ago, if you think about it, which is amazing, like serial um, five, seven years ago. And you've, you just to think about how it's grown since then. But the reason I got into it initially was probably for uh, less altruistic reasons. And the reason I continue to do it now are what I hope are the right reasons in uh, the audience. The audience is always my top priority, respecting their time, giving them what they want, telling them the story, entertaining, entertaining them, informing them and inspiring them is what I try to do with everything that I, I do. But I originally got into it because I'm a nerd. Basically, I just like the tech. <laughs> yeah, most of the people I've talked to that, uh, started a podcast where I would, I would describe it as pretty nerdy people that had a, like, a specific interest or, yep. or yep. like you said, um, the tech, the idea that, oh my gosh, I could make my own radio show in this room. So cool. Yeah. And, and that I can put something out there and when you wake up in the morning, it's right there on your phone. It's like magic, you know, it doesn't seem magic now, but back then it was. Yeah, it's really interesting that you point out one of the big deals in podcasting was Apple Podcasts. You're you're totally right about that. I remember starting my show in 2018, yeah, 2018, 2019, looking at the numbers for my show that 70 plus percent of my audience was from Apple Podcasts. Yep. And still is probably. Oh no, now it's probably 30%. Oh, really? Yeah, because okay. now there's so many different platforms. I can, you know, you look at your podcast stats and they'll break it down. Mm -hmm. Some of them are hilarious. I love like on one, it showed me like three people had downloaded your show using Windows 98. And I was like, <laughs> how the hell does this work? How did they keep track of that? Why are they on a Windows 98 machine? Yeah, if they're on important. a Windows 98 machine, what the hell are they doing listening to a podcast? And why would it be mine? But have you been asked this? Have you been asked, do you think that DB Cooper has ever listened to your show? I don't believe I've been asked that, but I definitely don't think he has. He's probably dead, I guess. He's probably dead. If he's alive, he'd be in his 90s. Right. The 90-year-old podcast audience is very small. <laughs> yep. But I would love it. If he's listening, if he's ever listened, please reach out to me. I would love to have you on the show. You never know. Or somebody he's told, I guess, would be more realistic, like a daughter, granddaughter, something like that. I've had and a few people reach out saying their relative was D.B. Cooper and they're a fan of the show and they want to come on. Only one of those people 
made it past uh Some okay screening. fine give me a phone call and we'll talk about it for a second okay all right no i think it's um it is kind of magical what it's turned into though because there uh, your show was i don't have a whole ton of time to listen to a bunch of different shows so i like to assign activities to shows so every time i drive to mason city to investigate some jody stuff it's the perfect length because it's about an hour there hour back so i'll pop on a couple episodes of your shows so i have listened to plenty of db cooper uh cooper vortex driving to investigate my own you know cold case uh podcast and i have caught myself you know driving through the cornfields in iowa thinking this is kind of crazy this is kind of a quote that, and i've also asked myself if i could flash forward as a kid when i started writing in in the newspaper and would i take my life now where i'm on the radio every day and i'm producing podcasts about cold missing per- mysteries i absolutely would have i think that's very cool so the spoken word has given a lot to me and i i'm just trying to get better at it every every episode i've thought about this if i could go back when i was reading skyjack there was one specific moment i um i was traveling i was visiting my parents and it, it was just me my wife was at home with the kids and i remember lying in their extra room reading skyjack thinking like this is so crazy um, if I could go back to that moment, what would I say to myself now? Like, yeah, the podcasting experience has been phenomenal. I've learned so much. I absolutely love doing it. I, I fantasized all the time about what it would be like to have my own radio show when I was, you know, delivering flowers for Foxfire Farm or uh, when I was working at some plastics recycling plant with earbuds working graveyard. Yep. Like it would be so great to have my own show. And I, I did it. I fucking did it. Like mm-hmm. I have my own show. I'm amazing. But also would I say to myself, you're, okay, you're getting into it with this DB Cooper thing, because believe it or not, man, you're not going to put this down like at all. And it's going to consume a large portion of your life. Yeah. If I would have told myself then like in a few years, you will be speaking at conferences about this. I would be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, and there are conferences about this? And there are conferences, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's great, though. I love that. I love the democratization of content because I'm, I'm a big American dream guy, and there's plenty wrong with our country, and there always has been. But it's amazing how you can move, you can move horizontally through this culture in whatever way you want, and it's just up to you to, to do it. And, um, it, what surprised me about stuff like you were just talking about is how subtly it happens. Like it's, you take one step and then one step and once and it doesn't seem like you're doing a whole lot, but pretty soon you look up and you see how far you've come, you know, and how, how, uh, how many steps you've taken on whatever path it is that you've taken. That's definitely true for me. I know it's true for you. That's, um, that, that's what it's all about. Cause it's either that, or what would I have done with this time? But for it, you know, these passions, you know, who knows, maybe I would have done nothing. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I am, um, as I go, I try to learn and I, I try to get better at it. And it sounds like that's what you're doing with this show, your spinoff show. And, uh, 
that's what it's all about. I mean, that while we're here, we may as well do something. I like doing this. So I, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. Even if, uh, even if nobody listens to this, no, um, I think at least great. I got the opportunity to do that. That was one of the things I, I learned about doing the Cooper vortex was, you know, if someone has a book on a subject that you find really interesting, reach out to them because the idea that they could be on a show, talk about that book uh, and potentially a handful of other people will buy it. It's a lot easier to get guests. You know, if I just, if I'm reading this book about gizmos and gadgets uh, written by John Parker or something, and I want to talk to John Parker, I could email him or I could see if I could harass him on Twitter or something, but he's not going to just sit and talk to me for 90 minutes. But if I could tell him, Hey, John, I've got this show. Do you want to be on my show? Sure. Sure. Then it's like, sure. I'll talk to you for 90 minutes then. Yeah. I think that's, that's uh that's a good sign for the start of the show too, because this is something that you want to do anyway. One of the first things I told you when we talked, I interviewed you for frozen truth was I commented on your interview style, which I think stands out to people, whether or not people that listen to your other show know it or not, I'll bet that's a big reason why they like your show is because it's uh, of your interview style and how it's devoid of ego. You're genuinely trying to listen and learn about whatever this person's talking about. And yeah, the thing about people that write books or content creators or stuff that you find interesting is they wrote a book on it for a reason. They probably didn't write the book to get rich. They probably didn't start the podcast to get rich. They're genuinely interested in, in that. And all you need is your interview style and then somebody who is passionate about something. And if you find it interesting, I mean, that's a show. That's it. Yeah. I always tell people like the reason I created the show wasn't because, you know, I had some goal of being a multimillionaire. Certainly, you know, D.B. Cooper suspect or subject doesn't seem to be a ton of dough in that. No, but it was honestly the show that I wanted to listen to at that time. There you go. Yeah. I wanted to listen to long form interviews with the people who were writing these books and arguing about it all day long. Yeah. So like, don't start a true crime show just because you've heard that true crime shows are popular. Right. Like, that's the worst advice. And the other advice I'd give is don't try to emulate anybody. Like if your favorite show is Joe Rogan, don't go try and do that. Take the inspiration that you get from listening to it. But you, I mean, you kind of just hit on it. What kind of show would you like to listen to that does not exist right now? That's the key. What show can you create that you want to listen to? And, and that's it. I do see in true crime in every field people making the mistake of um, trying to be somebody else, emulating their favorite show. Uh, Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery or vice versa, um, however the expression goes. But you have to be filling a void in the marketplace. And also, as long as you're emulating somebody, it's fine to jump off of somebody for creative inspiration. We've all done that. We all come from that place. But you're never going to provide anybody anything if you don't create anything that doesn't exist right now. If you or a ripoff of whatever show, then why wouldn't I just listen to that show that's been around for longer and is probably better at it? So use use whatever shows you like to listen to as inspiration and then go create your own path. Go do your own thing. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's tough to rip someone off and be better than them. Yes. So <laughs> do, do your own thing. But we are all inspired by various different people, and that's great too. All right, Scott, what was your first car? 
my first car was a 19 what year was it it was an Isuzu Trooper it was a god um I want to say like a 96 97 Isuzu Trooper it was actually my first two cars so my mom loved Isuzu Troopers so she had two of them and they got passed down to me um that was my first car it was a great car the stick shift it was a lot of fun it was good in the winter so uh yep that, that was my first car your mom was passionate about troopers and uh, chose to buy a stick shift yes yep um she's been strange about cars in that she owned uh, those troopers i think out of necessity because of colorado with the winter but she also to this day owns a sob and she's always owned a sob as far as i can remember she probably owned three or four of those at that point and it's the most impractical car not just for colorado but if you ever try to fix a sob good luck you know when it to find parts but yeah she handed me down a a blue no it's, it couldn't have been a 96 probably it was an 86 i'm sure it was an 86 a zuzu trooper the boxy the stick shift but yeah that's that's uh i still know how to drive a stick shift and unfortunately they don't make those anymore apparently but um yep that was my first car sob hmm they're now, fun now i'm but i'm not interested in talking to you anymore now i want to talk to your mom <laughs> she might be much more interesting her stories about me might be more interesting sob was she a teacher she was not no she was a and still is a children's book agent so she's the middle person between the author and the publisher that's what she always uh did i guess teacher because there's like some automotive stereotype sob <laughs> owners were professors no and not a subaru either and then as you know in colorado you have a one in three chance of driving a subaru out there but no it was a a trooper and i never drove the sob never got handed that one it's too nice a car for you i guess yeah too much <laughs> too much horsepower what is a great lesser known documentary oh give me a genre no genre oh man um I'm a huge documentary fan, so I'm stressed. It's like asking me what my favorite song is. Um, I'll name a few while you're thinking of some. Sure. Um, Tickled by David Fer- Ferrier. Fer- I've not seen that. Oh, my God. Tickled. And then there's a brief follow-up called The Tickle King. What's that? A- it is the most insane documentary ever. It's on HBO Max, I believe. But basically... Th- this journalist from New Zealand stumbled across this story where athletes were competing in competitive tickling for cash. And he looked at this and thought that seems really weird to me. And so he starts looking into it more and more and uncovers this ring of people who are making homoerotic tickling videos that goes so crazy deep that you won't believe the amount of, of time and money and resources that were spent making borderline pornographic homosexual tickling videos. Really? It, it's I, I wish I could say more, but if you haven't seen it, Tickled. And then there's a brief follow-up called The Tickle King, which there was some shenanigans that happened during the release of the movie so he had to make like a brief second one because it was just too good Uh, amazing i wish i could say the guy's last name it's i think it's david 
David Ferrier, something like that. Brilliant guy. He also did a little Netflix show called Dark Tourist, where he visited places where there's a tourist industry, but you're like, why is there a tourist industry for that? Like you could go and tour um, these Colombian drug lord homes. One he did where he went in on this tour of Chernobyl. Uh, Great, great. Tickled and the Tickle King. I can't recommend it enough. The other one that I tell people you got to see, it's called Missing Mom. And that was done by Rob... I want to say his last name is McZob, but I think that's like his Twitter handle. Rob Missing Mom. Rob McCallum. Amazing movie. So basically, it's this Canadian dude who seems like uh, some drama in the family. Um, There's some crazy stories going on there, but basically, him and his half brother, their mom like disappears when they're 10 and 8 and never comes back. They hmm. never hear from her. The family never hears from her. They don't know where he is. So he decides to make a documentary about he's going to find his mom. And it's it's so like weirdly personal. And it doesn't feel like they did this and then decided to turn it into a movie. It's very clearly like, okay, we're going to make a m- movie about this and we'll see if it works right. out. See what happens. And we'll see what happens. I can't recommend that one enough. Okay. Fantastic. So those are my two go-to. Oh, there's another one. Um, I think it's called Lost and Found, maybe, but it's a a debate over the rightful owner of a severed leg. <laughs> wow. Huh. Yeah, it sounds like you go deeper into the deeper cuts than me. Um, I'll watch any documentary on any of the streaming services I have, but I don't seek out, I've never heard of any of those three. So um, underrated documentary, I'd have a hard time answering because I'll bet most people have seen anything that I would name. Uh, and I can't think of anything that jumps to the top of my my page right now, but I'll watch. Finders Keepers is the name of the missing leg movie. Of the missing leg? <laughs> the severed leg, severed leg, not missing. It was, it was found. Uh, Finders Keepers. Okay. I'm not sure I have a great answer. Because now, I mean, those are, those sound like deep cuts. So I'll bet most people have seen my my mainstream stuff. But if, uh, yeah, if there's a documentary, I'll watch it. I love, I don't know what it is. More often than not, I'll fall asleep to, I, I tell my wife, it's my narrator. You know, that it has to be that certain style that for some reason puts me to sleep. You know, if it's a narrated documentary. But uh, man, I, I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to give... I don't want to give underrated documentaries that everybody's probably seen. All right. I'll give you a pass on that one, but I expect you to watch at the very least tickled and, and tell me, Holy shit, dude, you were totally right. That's the I, most insane story I've ever. I will venture in. I don't have HBO anymore, but I will venture in. It's probably out there too. It's probably on YouTube or something. It's been around for a while. Sounds like it's, I think it's on HBO. Cause it, I okay. want to say it premiered on HBO and they like keep their stuff on their platform. Right. Um, those type, type of docs forever, but yeah, can't say enough uh, <laughs> good stuff about that movie. All right. Final question here. What the hell are the Broncos going to do with, with quarterback next year? Mm. Well, so I like Teddy, but I, there's an argument arguments we made that he had an unproven season. He got off to such a great start. He, the first two, three games when they were playing terrible teams, 
were uh, pretty amazing. Then he kind of fell off, and then there was the infamous tackle where he didn't dive in in one of the games there that seemed that seemed to piss the media off. So that was the end of Teddy. Um, I'm I'd love to like Drew Locke, but I'm not sold on him. You know, he's had enough reps. So this is a tough situation because the quarterback market right now is not not great. We're dealing with the same thing here with my other team locally in Minnesota, where um, people are wanting Kirk Cousins out, but there's just no one to go get, really, that looks super great. And you can draft somebody, but that takes a couple of years. And uh, I don't have a great answer to that question either. They may have to trade for somebody. They may have to find something else. I, I think, man, if it were me, this will probably piss people off, but I would... I would draft somebody this year, first round. I would keep Teddy. I would work with Teddy, build around that, try to be one of those teams that makes the playoffs with a very average quarterback. And then hopefully the guy that you've drafted will come up. But yeah, it's been rough. Ever since Elway, as we know, it's been rough. Well, Peyton, except Peyton Manning, but after Peyton, it's been rough. I don't know. What do you think? Do you have an answer? I definitely don't have an answer for that. Although <laughs> I think your criticism of Kirk Cousins is bullshit. I think he's a pretty good quarterback. Oh, it's not my criticism. No. So I think what we do out here is we trade the running back we have in Delvin Cook, even though he's a great football player, and you get something for him because now's the time to trade him and you keep Cousins because I'm a Bronco fan. And as a Bronco fan, I know how hard it is to find yourself a decent quarterback. Cousins made the Pro Bowl this year. I don't know what. But it's, it's been a thing for the last couple of years here for the Vikings. There's the stigma against Cousins. He can't win a big game, can't win a playoff game, can't win a primetime game. No, I think that's short-sighted. The problem in Minnesota is not Kirk Cousins. But the problem in Denver is somewhat the quarterback. So, um, hey, if they want to trade Kirk Cousins to the Broncos, that'd be fine with me too. That might work out. I would definitely start him over Bridgewater or – yeah, Drew he's Locke. a better. Yeah, I agree, but it's a tough spot. I like this this uh, Peyton though, the George Peyton, the new GM in Denver. I like him a lot. So here is hoping, but you know, as I love the Broncos, always have been a Bronco fan, but we are spoiled fans out there. You know, we're expecting the playoffs every year, and that's tough to do. But um, it's been a while at the same time. So, hello, new coach, bunch of new coaches. Second year GM. Hopefully, we're turning things around here. I don't know. What if Tom Brady posted on on Twitter tomorrow? You know what? I think I'd like to play ball in Denver. Would you support that idea? I think he can still play. Um, I think the problem with that. This is a lesson I learned from Peyton. Is you give up the farm, or you pay so much money for a quarterback like that, and it keeps you from thinking down the line. It's like what the Packers have right now with Aaron Rodgers. It's fine, but Tom Brady's not going to play another two years. He, he could play for another season somewhere. I don't think he will. But let's say he did, and you can make a Super Bowl run. What then? You know, if, the, if you win the Super Bowl, that's worth it, But like with Peyton. But what comes after that is deep and dark, as we found <laughs> since after Peyton Manning. So all, I'd almost be happier if he went somewhere in the NFC that we don't have to play. And uh, not to Denver because <laughs> we need to figure something out for the long term. And Peyton kind of kept us from doing that for the Broncos. You, you've got these disillusioned quarterbacks. Um, you know, Aaron Rodgers may or may not want to play in Green yeah. Bay anymore. 
Uh, Russell Wilson doesn't seem like he's having a great time in Seattle since he doesn't have a good defense or offensive line anymore. Mm-hmm. If you could pick between those two, would you take either one or would you I'm- rather? Okay. I'll give you three choices next year. Aaron Rodgers starts or you have Russell Wilson or I'll give you the second pick in the draft. Oof. I guess it would just depend on how much we're given up because I would take either Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers. I think Aaron Rodgers is the better quarterback, especially for the Broncos offense at the moment, which doesn't need a scrambling quarterback. We have two great running backs, at least at the moment. So I would take Aaron Rodgers, but there again, like if we have to give up three draft picks and a bunch of money, if we can't sign anybody else and we have other needs, Aaron Rodgers is amazing, but I would, I'd wonder about that. I'd almost rather take the second overall in the draft. And I mean, that's how you get your good quarterback. That's how we got Elway. That's how you get your quarterback for at least five or six years in the current NFL before he moves on, makes too much money. That's what we need. We can't keep going from quarterback to quarterback. It's just killing. We're wasting. We wasted all of uh, Miller's good years, Von Miller's good years. We're wasting Bradley Chubb's years, the secondary. Uh, we got to get, you know, we got to get going. So I might take the draft pick, man, just because I don't know what the price tag would be on the other two. I think Russell Wilson would be cheaper. But if either of those three three things happened, I'd be fine, I guess, because next season is next season. But I, I don't know. I like Teddy. I think Drew Locke, unfortunately, has to go. And uh, I don't know. Maybe you just get rid of the quarterback position and do like a wildcat thing. I don't know. That would be pretty crazy. Would you take (laughs) Deshaun Watson? Depends on the coach. I don't know much about this new coach that we have, but he's obviously got some baggage, man. He's got ongoing, literally pending litigation baggage. So that's, that's a lot for a locker room. And I think he's talented, but I, I don't think he's an outstanding quarterback in the sense that the Broncos need. So I, I I would probably say no. I I would say no. Also, he's an amazing quarterback, but I, I don't want to have that criticism thrown at a team that I care about. Were you a Tim Tebow fan? No, I I just was completely indifferent about him. I felt like, okay, if he's great, then he's great. I watched the games. He doesn't seem to be great. No, uh, I think it call me crazy. I think a quarterback should be able to throw the football and (laughs) Tim Tebow was not a great passer, but it was a big deal. Tebow mania and all that. Yeah, that was and he won that one playoff game, and that was great. But no, I was not a Tim Tebow fan. I think we need a Kirk Cousins. I think we need a, a pocket passer, more or less. And we've got great receivers. We've got the two great running backs. Williams is going to be a Hall of Famer if he doesn't get hurt. I love him. Love Jerry Judy. Cortland Sutton's hitting his stride. So it's all no offense. So we have the offense. We just need a guy to throw these guys the football. I don't think we need a Russell Wilson running around. Russell's a good passer, but... Deshaun Watson running around making plays, pocket passer, and then whatever we do, we have to be thinking about the next guy behind him, whether it's uh, Aaron Rodgers or the second-round draft pick or whatever. But it's tough. It's a tough spot. Honestly, the team last year kind of was in line with my expectations. So as frustrating as it was, I was okay with it. I would love to sneak into the playoffs, but then again, why would you want to sneak into the wild card round so you can lose a playoff game? <laughs> so I don't know. 
they had a good start to the year, like you said. I thought they could actually be a pretty good team this year, but and their defense is good. I think they ended up playing not great, and then Teddy fell off a cliff, and yeah, there just was no offense. That really was the problem. Defense was fine, but I don't know how well we're ever going to do as long as Patrick Mahomes is playing in the AFC West. It's just he's beaten us ten straight times, so I don't know. Someone <laughs> needs to trade him. All right, Scott. Why don't you tell everyone uh, where they can hear you? Tell them about your 17 podcast that you mm-hmm. run and uh, where they could harass you if you want. Do they want to tell you you're all wrong about everything? Sure. Especially your um, opinions on Kirk Cousins. On Kirk Cousins. It's not my opinion. I think <laughs> they should keep them, but they're not going to keep them, unfortunately. So uh, I host my active podcasts are Frozen Truth, Status Pending, Dead and Gone in Wyoming, and the Fine Jody podcast, where I'm a team member at Fine Jody. You can find my various email addresses through any of those. Um, yeah, Darren, if you want to share my email address in the show notes for this, you certainly can. That's fine with me. I share them in my own uh, notes. And uh, yeah, that's uh, those are my current ongoing projects. And I want to say thank you for having me on. This was great. I could have done this for five hours. And um, uh, I'm glad you're doing this new show. Anybody who hasn't listened to your other show, by the way, should definitely find the Cooper Vortex because it's uh, it's great. I am sad that the episodes are winding down, but you said you're not going to get rid of it. You're just going to update it as needed, right? Update it as needed. If the case is solved, uh, you know, seven weeks from today, then I'm definitely going to be doing a few more Dropping updates. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm not going to just, I'm not going to force people to do the show that sure. shouldn't have been on the show. Right. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, but you do have a great past catalog that people can get caught up on too. Starting with that very first episode with Bruce Smith, you can't ask for a better opener than that. It's awesome stuff, but no, thank you for having me on. It's been great and good luck with this one too. Thanks, Scott. I had had a really good time. I had questions I written down that I didn't have time to get to, which I didn't think would happen, but uh, it was just a really good time talking to you. That's better than the opposite. That's better than running out of questions. Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Darren. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Scott. Go follow Scott right now and check out his work. Frozen Truth, Find Jody, Dead and Gone in Wyoming, Status Pending. And if you're near Austin, Minnesota, find him on your radio dial, findjody.com. We will have links to all his work in the show notes. Thank you to Scott Fuller for his advice on radio and his hot takes on the Denver Broncos. Thank you to Russell Colbert for his advice on homing pigeons and his hot takes on the Boise State Broncos. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Book of Darren. Forget about it. This book is not for you.